When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are Anything your heart desires Will come to you If your heart is in your dream No request is too extreme When you wish upon a star As dreamers do Hello and welcome to When We Were Young, the only podcast that covers Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots one week and then immediately covers Pinocchio and Snow White the next. They were from 1994 too, right? Uh, <laughs> Grun- falling out of the grunge movement. <laughs> this is a 1994 podcast from now on. <laughs> I'm Becky, the podcast host, most likely to seen a peanut stand, heard a rubber band, seen a needle that winked its eye, but I be done seen about everything when I see an elephant fly. I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to be Twitter-pated. And I'm Seth, the host most likely to search every crooked fanny. <laughs> Is that from, where is that from? That's from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. <laughs> Who says it? It's probably it's, Doc, because he mixes up his it's words. It's Doc, because he oh, switches up words. Oh, that's right. So on today's episode, <laughs> we are doing five movies. Yes, five movies. <laughs> yes, five movies. <laughs> that were released way, way, way before we were young, or even born, or before our parents were even born. Even though these movies were released in the 1930s and 40s, they were huge movies in our childhoods and continue to be popular films for children today. So we are covering the five movies in Disney Animation's Golden Period, which are Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Bambi. I don't know about you guys, but I watched these movies repeatedly as a child, and I haven't watched them since I was a child. So this was a very interesting experience for me to go back to something that I haven't, that I knew so well back in the day, but haven't seen in decades. I mean, this was definitely one of the easiest podcasts to prepare for, I feel like, just because it's like all the knowledge is right there for you. I mean, people talk about Disney constantly. Disney talks about Disney constantly. And none of this has like left the public consciousness. So it was very easy. There was no digging to do. I mean, I did. I had not seen a lot of these movies in a long time, but it wasn't like wildly out of left field. Like everyone knows what these movies are and kind of what's in them. And, you know, certain problematic elements are mostly already known. You know, it's not like we're going to be like confronting something new that no one has watched in a long time or really thought critically about. Like everyone has thought <laughs> pretty critically about Disney. Yeah, I think it was interesting. Is this the first time we've we've done movies that are like very old? <laughs> there, there's some we covered before we were born, but that was like 1980 or the 70s. Yeah, this I is... think this may be the furthest flung back in history. Yeah, probably and I mean so. it's it, and I mean we'll get more. We'll get more into the specifics of kind of the aesthetics and style of animation and all of that. But it is kind of amazing to me that these movies are still so prominently known and so well regarded even now. And even with those kind of problematic things that I know we'll also talk about. (laughs) So just to go right into it, did you guys... (laughs) The question was, did you like Disney growing up? But I think I should ask, how much did you like Disney growing up? A lot or a ton? (laughs) (laughs) well i've got steamboat willie tattooed on my lower back (laughs) if anyone's ever seen my lower back you know it but that has nothing to do with disney i assume (laughs) no no no. steamboat willie was just this guy i dated for a little while a couple years ago we had a really intense thing 
so funny. I was talking to my mom a lot this weekend, and we both kind of found ourselves entirely unable to, like, trace back when we first started seeing these specific movies. I know that her mom, my grandmother, had tapes of these movies at her house, and we would maybe watch them at Christmas time or just anytime we were bored and hanging out there. I had VHS tapes of them at home. I know at some point I would have seen almost all these movies in a theater because they were re-released at one point or another, even in a place like New Orleans that's not exactly hugely known as a movie town. So I really kind of had these things framing my entire childhood and like watching them was not like a daily ritual at all. But when I was growing up, they really were kind of the epitome and height of animated movies and also just of really compelling stories that made me have really emotional reactions even when I was a little kid. And even when, you know, at an age when you don't have a super developed like emotional vocabulary. I was just a huge Disney fan, but especially the these kind of early age movies were a huge part of that. Also, like living in Louisiana, we were close to Florida, so we would go to Disney World often, like as like a summer vacation trip. So I got to like ride the rides of these movies that had already been fifty or sixty years mm-hmm. old. Yeah, I guess I would say a lot <laughs> if the choices are <laughs> yeah, between yeah. a lot and a ton. Oh yeah, <laughs> if it's a binary choice, I'm gonna say yeah. I've seen every Disney animated feature except for. The Black Cauldron, at least once. Even um, like three cabare- cabarellos? Or I have now saying? seen them <laughs> once okay. uh, in my preparation. I'll, I'll get there <laughs> in a little bit. Three cigarillos? Well, okay, not counting those um, package ones, which escaped my mm. <laughs> my attention and many other childhood attentions. But it, all the feature-length ones. And we owned, like, several of them, so those are the ones that I really bonded with. A couple of these happened to be the ones that we're talking about today. So um, Dumbo and Bambi, I know, were ones that I watched a lot. Also Cinderella, 101 Dalmatians. They were always, like, there. Like, Seth, my grandma, had them. I think she had a couple of those for us to watch, so we those would be the movies we would always put on when we went over to her house, which is probably pretty frequently, so we saw them a lot. I feel like there was a law in the 80s to distribute videotapes mm-hmm. of Disney movies to all grandmas. <laughs> Just all grandmas in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an era of Disney that I think is not nearly as well-known to pretty much any child our age, which is like the Rescuers and Great Mouse Detective era. Like, I feel like that one didn't really take off in the way that like these movies were pretty ever-present. Like, you could mention these and Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland and, you know, kids knew them. Like It was the dark age. Yeah. Because <laughs> I looked up all the eras of Disney animation. It's the Bronze Age or the Dark Age. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm also surprised it's not like the Black Plague of Disney animation. <laughs> the wasting disease. <laughs> Those are never coming out of the vault. <laughs> So, I mean, I had no concept of, like, when these movies came out when I was a kid. Like, I knew they were older. And then, like, we saw all the Disney Renaissance movies, like, coming out as they happened. So we were, like, aware of new Disney movies. But there was really no difference between any movie that had been released by Disney at any point before The Little Mermaid from each other. Like, they were all, like, the ones from the 40s and the ones from the 60s all just kind of get mashed together. Like, Mm -hmm. they are very strangely timeless in a way that live-action movies are not. And even a lot of animated features are not. You know, like, you watch a kind of a Bugs Bunny cartoon and it'll have references to specific movies and certain cultural things, but the Disney movies really don't have a lot of that. Like, they're very much set in their own time and place, and so it's all 
almost like they were just designed to like live forever like and and never really feel dated because there are certainly some things about them that feel slightly dated especially the problematic things that we'll talk about but in general there's not a lot that tells me like dumbo was 20 years before 101 dalmatians for example yeah, it was funny. Again, like talking to my mom, she actually had no idea that these earliest movies were as old as they were. Like she had no idea that they were actually made even before she was born because like most movies that she's grown to love really were from her time or after. But uh, I think you're exactly right, Chris, especially for this period, Disney is kind of its own genre. And even though these are hand animated movies and like you can see the fact that every single moment of these movies is handcrafted, even for that, they kind of exist out of time in a way that I think is really rare, but also kind of a mark of real art. Yeah, I'm not sure that I have, like, a huge connection to Disney beyond that it was there. Like, I mean, I've never been, like, the hugest animation person. So even though I really liked a lot of Disney movies, I think I always kind of gravitated toward, I don't know, something that was more, like, realistic and that. But I think Bambi was probably the first film I saw in theaters. I remember seeing it. Um, it was re-released in 1988, so I would have been five. And oh, I definitely saw that in theaters. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. kind of the perfect first movie to see. I mean, also, a very traumatizing first movie to see. I'm not sure if I remember this or I remember my mom telling me that my sister was too little to hold down the seat in the movie theater. So she just kept like bouncing up and getting trapped in between. But, but I was watching the movie. I also have a fond memory of winning a Fox and the Hound coloring contest at my local video store, which came with the prize of a Fox and the Hound VHS and I believe a stuffed animal. So oh. I've seen the Fox and the Hound more than most people have. I'm glad they didn't adopt out a fox and a hound as prizes. I either saw that once or not at all. I can't remember. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I only like it, I think, because I won it. And it makes me feel special. See, I feel like I must have had a lot of like Disney super fans in my family then because we did have like Fox and the Hound, the Aristocats, Rescuers, or Rescuers Down Under. I feel like a lot of and also like Pete's Dragon. There's mm-hmm. some there's some real obscure ones that really don't need to be revisited. <laughs> oh, that reminds me though. Uh speaking of another weird thing, uh I had a giant like you know, in the movie theater, they have the cardboard cutouts of, like, yeah. coming movies. I had the Aristocats. Like, the theater <laughs> gave it to us for some reason, so I had that in my basement. It was, like, this giant thing <laughs> for a movie that I saw, I think, in theaters once, and then I never again. So I've also had a weird fondness for that movie. So I did have random <laughs> Disney items in my home. And I went to Disneyland when I was five, so um, that's a thing. And Disney World uh, when I was a teenager, so... You know, I did all the Disney stuff. It was there. I, there are people that I would call kindly dis, Disney aficionados or... Disney um, freaks. Oh, Disney they, freaks. They freaks. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely not one of those people because I just... It didn't really carry on for me. Like, I was like, cool. Like, once I outgrew it, I just kind of outgrew it and mm-hmm. didn't, like, care that much for a long time until, you know, now it's fun to go back and revisit it. But it's not something I need a lot of in my life. It's funny that I, I mean, I, I really do love Disney, but I would not consider myself like a Disney freak. There was a, uh, an auction in Los Angeles recently where they were selling stuff from Disneyland from like the 19, like when it opened in the 1950s, like it was old Disney stuff. Mm. And I was like, I remember I was like eight months pregnant 
But I was like, this will be a fun activity for a Saturday. We got there when it opened, and the line was already, like, enormous. <laughs> and I, the people that were there, like, at the crack of dawn were wearing, like, the Disney-printed out- outfits and the ears. And Jesus. Like, you could be like, that is the kind of person that I am not. And we actually... Were there some furries? <laughs> like, in a... In a di- no. But, like, <laughs> but like that um, enthusiasm and... Desperation. Yeah, I didn't say it. I just... I'm not there. Because after an hour of waiting, I was like, I'm hungry and tired. We're leaving. I don't care enough. <laughs> and that's not how somebody like that, I feel like that would be like all they're doing that day, you know? Um, yeah. So there is a limit to my, my love for Disney. But I grew up watching all of these movies. Loved them. I mean, watching these five movies, it was like deja vu, where like as soon as they said the line, like I knew the line. Mm. Mm-hmm. It was just like, oh my god, I watched this so much when I was little that it's like ingrained in me. Like I can't recite it as they're speaking, but the second I see it, I was like, wow, like flashback. But I think that by the time I was six, The Little Mermaid came out, and that was like the Disney Renaissance, and then those movies became like my favorite Disney movies. So like everything else pretty much got like shuffled aside. And I think it was because like my family was really into musicals, so I was into musicals. A lot of these Disney movies are musicals. But this was like, they literally took Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and they were writing musicals on Broadway, like Little Shop, and they acquired their talents and it was like they were making Broadway musicals in their cartoons versus we're just going to have a song, you know, here or there. Oh, yeah. Some of those later ones are almost like sung through. Yeah. Like there's some dialogue, but most of the story is advanced by the songs. Yeah. And it's mostly like, it's Broadway style singing. It's Broadway Mm -hmm. style songs. And that's what I loved. And I think that that's probably the last time I watched like Pinocchio and Dumbo and like all these movies that I loved, Lady and the Tramp, 101 Dalmatians, Alice in Wonderland, because just like this new era came in and I was just like, fuck all that. (laughs) I'm all about this new era. (laughs) Um, And then I was like, you know, super, super into The Lion King and Aladdin. And like I went to Disney when I was five and then I went to Disney twice during high school and land or world didn't go to Disneyland until I was 17 with my mom. So you went to Florida first. Okay. Well, I was in New York, so it's an easier trip. Got it. Okay. And I loved it. It was exactly what you want it to be when you're little, just happy, happy times. So it was really interesting going back to this era. So let's learn a little bit about how Disney started, Disney Studios, and it'll lead us up into Snow White. The company was founded on October 16th, 1923 by brothers Walt and Roy O. Disney. It was the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio in Hollywood. I have a feeling something went wrong. (laughs) (laughs) They worked out a deal with Winkler Productions to produce the Alice comedies. And Alice comedies were based on Alice in Wonderland. And they moved their company to Hyperion Street, which is really cool because that's right near me. So it's like, oh, it's right there. It was renamed Walt Disney Studios very quickly. The Alice comedies didn't do anything. Like, nobody cared about them. So Walt decided to create his own original character. It was not Mickey Mouse. It was Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He produced 26 short comedies starring uh, Oswald before he had a fallout with Charles Mintz, um, who had taken um, who had taken over Winkler Productions in 1928. Um, All of this sounded very familiar because The Simpsons parodied this. I see. (laughs) So of, of their itchy and scratchy like cartoons. Yeah. So all of this seemed very familiar to me. Um, legally, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit um, belonged to Mintz and his company, so Walt couldn't use him anymore when he left. 
Um, so we decided to come up with a new character. Did you happen to look at a picture of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit? Yeah. He looks a lot like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah? <laughs> yes. Like, exactly, but with, like, slightly longer right. ears. But, Chris, they're different species entirely. <laughs> I mean, Walt is an animator. It was his style, you know, so... Mm-hmm. I'm just saying he didn't, like... Go for broke with a new... Like, he didn't... <laughs> he just made the ears uh, yeah. rounder. Yeah. He didn't think outside the bun. <laughs> and so that was the silent era of Disney animation, 1923 to 1928. Now we're entering the pre-golden age, 1928 to 1937. <laughs> I feel like I'm on a ride. Whee! <laughs> In 1928, Walt collaborated with Ub Ewerks. I am not saying that right. It is a strange name. To create a new character, it was named Mortimer Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> um, his wife didn't like that name, so they renamed him Mickey. <laughs> yeah, Mortimer is not Morty. Good. Morty Mouse. Yeah. Morty's Mickey, okay. Like, so Mickey's not short for Mortimer. No, I always like the name Mickey, but I could never name a child that because of Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so. Yeah, to me, like Mickey always seemed like a kind of nickname for another name. Yeah, Mitchard. Mitchard. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, maybe? Maybe. Is that what it's... Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for injecting some practicality into this. Shut up, that you. Would, that would be dangerous. <laughs> Mickey made his first appearance in 1928 in a test screening of the short film called Plane Crazy. <laughs> uh, the film did not pick up a distributor, so Walt went back to the drawing board and created Steamboat Willie, which you may have seen. I watched it today. I watched it also uh, this week and was surprised at the amount of torture of animals <laughs> in the name of music yes mm-hmm. uh it's kind of graphic i mean it's not they seem kind of into it sometimes yeah the, the animals are volunteering for torture that's true but there's that's what i like lots in of nipple play <laughs> more nipple play than you normally see in a disney cartoon with a cow mm-hmm. it's not like it's mini well what's the difference between a mouse and a cow <laughs> Answer it, Becky. Minnie's wearing panties and a skirt, and the cow is naked, so that means they're an animal, and anything with clothes... Okay, so if they're out there, you're just allowed to tweak them. (laughs) You know who else believes that, Becky? Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) Yeah, there's a list, actually. We don't have time for that Yeah, we don't. Steamboat (laughs) Willie was released in October 1928. It was an immediate success. It was due to the fact that it was the first cartoon to feature synchronized sound, and it also established Mickey as the mascot of Disney. Right after this time, the Disney company released Silly Symphonies, which featured also Minnie, Pluto, Goofy, Donald Duck, like all of the classic Disney characters. And it's kind of interesting when I just kind of thought about this. I was like, there's a few like Mickey and the Beanstalk or things like that. But generally, like their huge characters like Mickey and Goofy and Donald are just from their shorts from the 1920s and 30s. That's their most recognizable characters. It's just really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't think kids see a whole lot of those shorts. I remember I saw a lot of them in various pieces or on the Disney Channel, but I think it's mostly, like, Disneyland that probably, like, Mm -hmm. keeps those characters alive so that, like, a lot of people know who Goofy is who have probably never actually seen, like, a Goofy cartoon or something. Yeah. I think that's true. And I I'm, I know that they made, like, generations of shorts later on, you know, that they would put on the VHSs of the feature-length movies or show in front of them in the theaters. And I didn't do too much research into whether or not they still do that, but I would imagine they probably still make, like, new content with it. But it's not like there's a rich lore to any of those particular characters. There's a TV show that my nieces watch that has, like, Mickey and Minnie and them, like, at, you know, it's like a 
shitty <laughs> TV cartoons. And there was, like, Goof Troop. <laughs> yeah. It was, like, the Goofy family. So, yeah, yeah, I guess they do have things for, like, little kids, but it's not mm-hmm. something that... It's, like, for, like, really little kids. Like preschoolers. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's nothing that would really entertain an adult. Yeah. I can testify to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I guess they're kind of there, but it is surprising, I think, how little these characters actually figure into what we think of as Disney, even though they are kind of the most iconic Disney characters. So the popularity of Mickey Mouse allowed Disney to plan for his first feature-length animation that did not star Mickey Mouse, <laughs> which I thought was also interesting that they he was such a popular character, but they just went in a completely different direction for their first full-length uh, animated movie. So here we are, the golden age. Sorry, the golden age. Ooh, it's so sparkly here. <laughs> which is the years we're going to be covering today, 1937 to 1942. So what differentiates these ages is not like box office success or what was a success and what was a failure, but it was the trends in the movies themselves that kind of separate the eras. So even if something is a box office success or critical success, it's really about what the style is in in the movies themselves. So in this era, it's um, it pretty much defined what you think of when you think of Disney. So in Snow White, it's fairy tales and princesses. Pinocchio, it's taking well-known literature and turning it into like a child-friendly film. With Bambi and Dumbo, it was taking animals and I'm going to say this word wrong: anthropomorphizing. <laughs> anthropomorphizing. Yeah, 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 it did. So, so close. It did. So close. Am- <laughs> anthropomorphize. Yeah, doing that. <laughs> Yeah, giving the story through a non-human character, exaggerated villains, the use of music, comedic sidekicks. That's pretty much what would be the basis in, in tons of other Disney movies. And when you think of Disney, you probably think of those characteristics. Yeah, so let's just go right into Snow White. We, I want to cover the other eras, but we only have so much time. And spoiler, we're going to do the Renaissance movies at some point this year. <laughs> when are we doing the Dark Ages? I <laughs> <laughs> So Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was released December 21st, 1937, and was released wide on February 4th, 1938. The supervising director was David Hand. It was written by eight people. <laughs> it was based off the Brothers Grimm fairy tale. The songs were written by Frank Churchill and Larry Morey. The budget was $1.49 million, which at the time was about maybe like four times as much money that they spent on one of those silly symphony shorts. So this was a really big risk for, for Disney. The box office, however, is $418 million. Wow. <laughs> And that is based off of theatrical releases over the years because it was re-released in 1944, 1952, 1958, 1950. 1967, 1975, 1983, 1987, and 1993. <laughs> And this award was unique because it was a normal-sized Oscar and seven miniature Oscar statuettes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, that's kind of adorable. And they were presented to Disney by Shirley Temple, which is even more adorable. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Quick, write a cuter story than that. And then a puppy came out. <laughs> and he and on top of the and? puppy was a tiny little mouse. <laughs> <laughs> And they did a little soft shoe together. <laughs> okay, now this is sounding like a bad Oscar ceremony. <laughs> and then Rob Lowe comes out. Yeah, and then Snow White comes out. <laughs> Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was the first full-length cell animated feature in motion picture history. Waltz had a fight to get the film made. His business partner and brother, Roy Disney, and his wife, Lillian, kept trying to talk him out of it. The Hollywood movie industry at the time referred to the film as Disney's folly while it was production, and Disney had a mortgage's house to help finance the film. So it was not a sure thing at the time to do any of this. Some other trivia is that Snow White became the first American film to have a soundtrack album that was released in conjunction with the feature film. Review-wise, it was very well-reviewed, um, <laughs> as you can imagine. For example, noted filmmakers such as Sergei Eisenstein and Charlie Chaplin said that Snow White was a notable achievement in cinema. Eisenstein called it the greatest film ever made. Uh, Hitler also really liked it, I found out. <laughs> oh, oh uh, which publication did he write for? <laughs> no, it was Charlie Chaplin, not Hitler. <laughs> they do get confused a lot. They have very similar mustaches. <laughs> the film inspired MGM Studios to produce their own fantasy film, The Wizard of Oz. And look how that turned out. <laughs> and in 2008, AFI named the film as the greatest American animated film of all time. And also, just as a little bit of trivia, the other names pitched for the dwarves, because it wasn't always the seven. Some of the ones suggested were Jumpy, Deffy, Dizzy, Hickey, Wheezy, Baldy. Epilepsy. Gabby, Nifty, Sniffy, Swift, Lazy, Puffy, Stuffy, Tubby, Shorty, and Burpee. I have an alternate list of <laughs> alternate names. Wait, that you've researched? Yes, oh yes. Oh my god. Well, you um, did say some, there was like tons. Yeah, some overlapped, but I'll just read all of them because I can't remember all of those. Uh, scrappy, Hoppy, Awful, Weepy, Gloomy, Snoopy, Silly, Gabby, Blabby, Flabby, Dizzy, and Biggie Wiggy. <laughs> And I have Notorious Biggie, <laughs> Figgy, Leggy, Eggy. Yours are fictional. Peggy. <laughs> and Barack. <laughs> While we're on the subject of dwarves slash dwarfs, <laughs> you will note that the title of the movie is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. With an S. It's true. With an it's S. true. I have always been under the impression that that's kind of a misspelling. It actually is accurate. Typo! <laughs> Why is it accurate? Dwarves isn't really a thing. It was made up kind of by Which? like J.R.R. Tolkien, and that's just referring to like his dwarves. But if you're talking about little people in a way that probably not politically correct anymore is with an F. So and like dwarfism. Yes. Well, because I, I think that's still a term. But but yeah, you're definitely right that it's like. I did not know that it was, that it, did Tolkien himself make that up? Or at least he popularized it, and that's why that is a word that people know. Mm. Um, but otherwise, cool. it is dwarfs. So, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I will. I want to see the movie with Burpee. Uh, what was it? <laughs> Awful. Awful. Awful is my favorite. <laughs> Don't forget Peggy. Surly. <laughs> Biggie Wiggy. Burly. All right, so what did you guys think of watching Snow White as adults? 
Uh, I was really interested in doing this episode in general because I've never really examined the Disney films as like eras or in order of any kind or like I said like everything before The Little Mermaid just kind of got lumped into one like old Disney category so it was really interesting to look at which movies specifically came out first and to kind of see that like like Disney is obviously one of the biggest brands in the world and at this point was not you know and was still taking risks and was still kind of scrappy and like exploratory so I found it really interesting to look at all these movies and I mean not to get too far ahead but just to kind of see how many different things he tried in this early era he didn't like obviously Snow White was a huge hit and that set the tone for a lot of Disney movies going forward but he didn't just keep making Snow White like the next several films like it took him a long time to get back to another like kind of princessy story mm-hmm. so yeah i mean as a historical document it's it's very interesting to watch this movie and it's very surprising how much of D- the disney formula is already there in this first movie from, from the very 80 start. something yeah. years ago there are a few things that are not there but in general the movie has so many of the things that we associate with disney like dead parents <laughs> an orphan animal sidekicks behaving cutely lots of comic relief but also a lot of kind of darker elements the villain and the villain's death feel very like classic disney and like, I mean, you saw the same kind of thing. <laughs> because it is classic Disney. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I guess like later other villain deaths feel mm-hmm. like exactly the same as yeah. the evil queen's death. Although there are a few, I think, rough edges in this movie in general. I mean, it feels like pretty much he knew what he was doing from the start and just kept on doing it. Which is interesting because what came before were like silly little comedies with Mickey and Donald. Right, yeah. It seems very different from from those silly symphonies. Yeah, and and it has a very rich world that it doesn't necessarily take great pains or lots of exposition to kind of flesh out in terms of giving you all these character details and stuff. But you're immediately kind of drawn into the world of this film and all of its characters. Yeah, Chris, like you, I was I was very excited to revisit these movies because, like both of you, I hadn't really watched them all that much since I was really little. Um, and I think Snow White's voice is a bit terrifyingly high. <laughs> but the voice acting is fantastic throughout, like in in every single way, especially the cast of dwarfs. Um, I think the dwarves themselves are just so sweet and funny. Um, it's a relatively slow movie, but uh, again, I, I feel like that is just as, mar- um, just as much a reflection of the time as anything else. Um, but yeah, all of those things leapt out at me and also i love these songs these songs are pretty much all classics uh and while the movie's not like a full-on musical in the same way that becky like the the disney renaissance movies were the songs really do drive the story well in my opinion um it was interesting i i because the the voice of snow white in this movie is so iconic um and adriana casalotti was the voice actress in this and she was paid $970 for this role. Uh, Walt Disney owned her and her voice under contract. And other than a bit part in The Wizard of Oz, she was in no other movies. Wow, really? Uh, and she later sued for more profits as the film was re-released all of those times that <laughs> yeah. Becky mentioned. Uh, and unfortunately, she lost. Um, but I do think, you know, it, it's kind of a, an amazing thing in retrospect that this is the actor who did like the first 
presumably what I'm guessing would definitely have been the first feature length voice acting role, like lead role in a movie. And mm-hmm. I think she does so tremendously that Snow White, or her voice is as indistinguishable and memorable for me as her like look and outfits as a character. Yeah, like I can already picture like the Snow White at Disney- Disneyland is like, hello there. Like this is the princess voice for Snow White, just very light. Yeah, and I and I know that it was the birth of Disney, pr- quote unquote, princesses or whatever. But I don't know. In this, to me, she's just Snow White. Like she's not that that whole like princess side of things. I feel like was kind of their later marketing term to like gather all of these oh, female sure. characters together. You know, and merchandise yeah. it or whatever. Yeah, there there is something that is so pure-hearted and really kind-hearted about this movie, but simultaneously really artistically ambitious. And it is kind of appropriate, I think, that like 80 years later, we're still talking about it. I felt like this was more interesting to watch as like history than as just like putting on a movie. Oh, it's not true. I hope you know. <laughs> I mean like animation history or like Disney history. First oh. animated documentary. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, just well, because, you can just film what's happening. Because it what? is slow. It, I, what I think is really funny is that literally like you meet Snow White and she's like, I want to meet a prince. And then the prince shows up and he's like, I love you. <laughs> it's like that. These are the princess tropes like right away. Yeah. It's like love at first sight. Like we love each other so much. We just met. And then it takes like 40 minutes for the dwarves to go in the house and see Snow White. <laughs> it's like, couldn't they have taken some of that and put it in the front so that they have a relationship, the prince and Snow White? And so the dwarves don't need 40 minutes to like sneak in the house. <laughs> yeah, that was the major thing. I think yes. probably the most surprising thing is that this jumps literally right into the action. Like the first scene is the evil queen asking who the fairest one of all is in the mirror, which is like, and I was like, oh, sh- it- it's going to tell her it's her. Like, this is the establishing mm-hmm. thing for that. And then we're going to meet Snow White. And then it's like, no, it's Snow White. And she's like, we must kill her. And I'm like, <laughs> but we haven't even met Snow White yet. Like, this is, I think, the biggest difference between this and other Disney movies, which are, on the whole, like, very carefully plotted out and really rarely feel rushed or too slow. Like, the pacing of Disney yeah. movies tends to be, like, really good. And this is the one that, like, feels too rushed in places and then too slow in places. Like, they, they hadn't quite figured out what to do. Like, I think this movie does a good job of sort of setting the template for later Disney movies where there's a sympathetic protagonist and a love story. It feels like that kind of is given lip service here, but you don't actually have much time to connect with Snow White. Like, I'm not even really sure. Is she a princess? Like, what is her deal? Right, that's pretty indiscriminate. She is the (laughs) stepdaughter of the evil queen. So she's a princess. So I think mm. her father was the king, and he's gone now. Yeah. (laughs) Her husband was her father. It's like Chinatown. But then she's also, like, wearing rags in the first scene. So, like... Didn't they say something, like, in the... I think it was in um, written in the beginning. It was, like, she sent her to be, like, a... I forgot what the word was, but, like like a cleaning lady for the for the castle. Oh, um I was trying to read this as a young child so I did not read it. Okay. <laughs> open. Yeah, I forgot what the, a scullery maid. That's mm. it. Scullery maid. Okay. That sounds pretty metal, but <laughs> yeah. it's name my band. Well, uh, yeah, I think <laughs> in general I think they could have like set all that up like you Right. <laughs> do you ever want you never see the queen and Snow White together, which is very weird. No, I don't no the only one she's like, only the she's, witch. like yeah. she's like the yeah. yeah. My husband Mike like was doing work in and out of the house and he left and he came back and he's like they're still washing up for dinner <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. was he whistling while he worked <laughs> no he didn't some of the things I really liked 
I especially like the sequence when she's in the woods and everything is scary and just the animation um, of like branches looking like something or shadows and, and she's just so scared and it really just, you felt like you were there with her and you were terrified of being alone and what's behind the corner. At that point in the movie, I said to myself, if I saw this in 1937, I would have been fucking floored. <laughs> like, I would have thought this was amazing. Unexistent Becky would have been so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Depression Becky. Yes. Yeah, I felt like when the dwarfs come into this movie, um, things really liven up a lot and feel much more like the Disney we know and love today versus like the opening just feels a little jerky and I really like it. It's very, very beautiful animation and I think the character design pretty much all around is, you know, top notch. Like oh, I Disney. like the, the magic mirror especially. I thought it was yeah. really, really neatly designed. I mm-hmm. always loved that, especially as a kid. Yeah, I, I always loved like the Disney evil queens. Yeah, this is a great evil queen. I wish she had more, a little more to do. I wish the mirror had more to do. I mean, I wish almost everyone except for the dwarves had more to do because the dwarves have a lot to do. <laughs> they, I feel <laughs> like they, they have much time doing They it. have much more to say than do. I feel like yeah, you know, like they definitely got much better at plotting and actual characterization in the sense of kind of fleshing out characters and giving them more to do, just more to play off of. Yeah, there was a point where I accidentally tuned out and <laughs> looked up, and I was like. <laughs> When they're, like, going upstairs to, like, look at her in bed, and I was like, wait, they didn't look at her yet? And they wound, like, five minutes, and I was like, how is this whole thing, like, them just going to look at her? (laughs) Like, in general, this this character doesn't have a whole lot of personality. She's, like, cute and sweet, and, you know, her name and the whole character is supposed to be basically just innocent, and that's all she is. But um, that was the one moment that I found her very endearing. (laughs) So what is the moral of this story? As the great Randy Newman once said, short people got no reason to live. <laughs> it seems like it is a cautionary tale. Like, don't don't be egotistical and or judge yourself against others or, you know, something bad will happen to you. It doesn't seem like a positive thing. Like, Snow White's already Snow White. She has no arc. Prince doesn't really have an arc. The dwarves don't really have an arc. So it just seems like very, very simple. It's really about the evil queen. Like, don't do that. Like, don't be a bad person or bad things will happen to you. I think the moral was kind of lacking for me as far as getting into the story of it that I feel like other Disney movies, even, you know, right after this, I feel like improved greatly upon that. Yeah, that's interesting. I, From what I remember of, like, the Grimm's version, I don't recall much more than what's here. I mean, it's a weird story. Like, yeah, it doesn't feel like it really represents very much. Innocence running into the woods and taking care of dwarfs. Like, that's not... That's Motherhood? Like, oh, the dwar- like, yeah, I mean, it definitely has that in there. But, like, yeah, it's the queen who's really driving the story and her envy is the most interesting thing. And the one, like, kind of irony I found in this is that she... She longs to be beautiful, tries to kill Snow White so she can be the most beautiful, and then when she wants to kill Snow White again, makes herself hideous. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I wanted there to be more there. Like, oh, like, the irony of, like, that she now has to have this disguise. Yeah, I was also thinking, like, maybe there is something with, like, she really did look like that old hag and was using magic to look beautiful. But even with her magic, she couldn't be as beautiful as Snow White. It's hard to, like, criticize such a simple story. But, like, I guess that's maybe why I don't connect to it as much as others. Yeah, and I think ultimately why it doesn't have as much depth and why those 
kind of inconsistencies in the rhythm of the pacing stand out more, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's not much more of a dramatic hook that's kind of pulling you through this and at least making the stakes seem higher, even if they aren't like crazy escalating in every scene. Yeah, I did want to talk a little bit more about the um, kind of role of Snow White as both a mother, mostly a mother, I guess, but kind of wifely kind of thing too, just because it's very gendered in that she gets to their house and immediately starts cleaning and cooking. For one, I mean, it's kind of weird. She is in a stranger's house. like. But she needs a place to stay. So she's yeah, doing so she just ma- she makes herself perfectly. <laughs> she yeah. is very much a princess in that sense. <laughs> and that the guys are all like, they love their squalor. Like they're kind of like disappointed that she cleans and they're just like dirty and working all day. And again, I find that very relatable <laughs> <laughs> and i do like to clean that's so. the part i connect with i don't know i just like it it was very very simple and that like later disney does a pretty good job of subverting cliches i mean it's still in a pretty safe way but they'll make the girl like much spunkier and like rebellious but that's after years of leaning yes. hard into gender roles oh yeah for sure like frozen didn't come out of nowhere like frozen is going against all those gender roles that they perpetuated for decades yeah. well and i'm sorry but i think think what Disney in particular have done is more performative acts of trying to look like they are different now, when ultimately the female, even the super spunky female leads in many of their stories exist to help men or to be swept off their feet by men. I don't really think that nearly any of those gendered character roles for female characters in Disney movies have really gone away. But Chris, I think you're exactly right that they're there like taken for granted from the very beginning and in ways that totally define really much of what these characters are about. Why is sleeping forever such a common fairy tale punishment? Because you're not dead, but it's like you're dead, so you can come back to life. Sign me up. (laughs) Well, but also, comas existed at this time. Those had been invented by this time. I think it's a way to be like, they're dead, but you can bring them back, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, it just, I mean, it's kind of the same trope as Sleeping Beauty, so... Yeah. That also has the same thing, but, like, she is rescued by necrophilia, basically. Yeah, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Well, and there's also something that's quasi-spiritual about it, in the sense that, like, there is that trope through almost all of these stories of requiring a kind of change in your state of consciousness in order to transcend your situation, you know? And in some Disney stories, that's, like... The, the slipper fitting and like then everyone realizes the slipper fits and you're the magic fairy princess like it, it, in this in Sleeping Beauty it's you're falling asleep but then like true love's kiss magically wakes you up I, and I feel like it's it, as much as anything else it's kind of like how do we make a plot element that can flip over and have this character seemingly make a change But again, like not really defining that character enough to have like an emotional change baked into that. Yeah. Yeah. It's strangely like removing of like literally any agency on the main character's part as she is asleep for the climax of the movie. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and then it's also like, if she's asleep, who actually cares what she wants or if she wants anything or if there's yeah. anything that she needs as a person that she's not getting? Yeah, it's not really about her. She wakes up and then everyone around her is happy. Like, yeah. she was fine. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I also found it weird that, like, she bites the apple, falls asleep. The dwarves care so much. You know, they're very heartbroken. I was actually, like, kind of surprised because, like, it didn't really feel like she'd been there that long or whatever. And then, like, they have this whole mourning thing and they put her in a glass coffin. Glass coffin seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> UV damage, come on. Yeah. But then she wakes up and then she just leaves. And I was like, I know, she just leaves them. Isn't the emotional arc kind of like more between her and the dwarfs and that they need a mother and that she, like, <laughs> yeah. I guess, like, I think we're supposed to kind of think like she found some kind of purpose that she didn't have maybe before by, like, taking care of them. I don't think there. It was really that they didn't really think that hard about yeah. it. Honestly, again, it's like the all of the organs of a great Disney movie are there, but like the skeleton in which all of those things can like properly coexist and like make the the whole greater than the sum of its parts. That's not quite there yet. Now it's time for Pinocchio. Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> it's a me, Pinocchio. <laughs> Pinocchio was released February 7th, 1940. The supervising director was Ben Sharpstein and Hamilton Lusk. It was written by seven people. <laughs> Based off the book, The Adventures of Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi. The budget was $2.2 million. The box office was $84.2 million. Though at the time, it did not make a profit. Right. Um, Pinocchio was theatrically re-released in 1945, 1955, 1961, 1978, 1984, and 1992. So it did eventually make its money back. Yeah. Yeah, did they finally do that? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that all these movies are fine now. In terms of profit. Yes. Does Disney folks, are are they doing okay money-wise? Are we sure about that? I don't know. Donate now. They have to open Star Wars land. Please donate now to Disney. Um, Won Oscars for Best Original Score and Best Song for When You Wish Upon a Star. As far as reviews, it was very highly regarded at the time. Um, Frank S. Nugent of the New York Times gave the film five out of five stars and said, Pinocchio is here at last. It's every bit as fine as we had prayed it would be, if not finer, and that it is... It is as gay and clever and delightful a fantasy as any well-behaved youngster or jaded oldster could hope to see. Spoiler for my opinion, it is as gay as as it could be. Uh. A little bit of trivia for Pinocchio before we share our thoughts. Um, In the original novel, Pinocchio is a cold, rude, ungrateful, inhuman creature that often repels sympathy and only learns his lessons by means of brutal torture. That would have been so much more relatable. So Steamboat Willie. <laughs> Were there more nipple clamps in the original? <laughs> <laughs> Honest John's compadre, Gideon the Cat, did originally have lines of dialogue, and they were voiced by Mel Blank. Wow. Who you might know as Bugs Bunny, among others. Not familiar, no. It was eventually decided that Gideon would be mute, so all of his recorded dialogue was deleted except for a solitary hiccup. <laughs> That's some Terrence Malick shit. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I filmed five hours of audio for this shit. So what do you guys think of Pinocchio? Do, 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 do. Uh, I was, I am impressed. <laughs> what is that? 
No, like, I feel like it could just be a long-form music video, and just, that's it. That was me coming down as the blue blue fairy. fairy? Yes. Okay. I'm in a top hat. No one can see that if you're listening, but... Of all these movies, Pinocchio held the fewest surprises for me because I wrote a paper on it. I have watched it since my childhood several times and studied it kind of intensely. So there was really nothing, like I already knew what my opinion of Pinocchio was. I honestly didn't need to watch it again for this, but I did. I think Pinocchio is perfect. It is the one I frequently call my favorite Disney movie, and I would say that that's probably still true. I think it's amazing how much of a leap this feels from Snow White, and that Snow White had so many things that were still very rough about it, and I think this movie just feels like such an advancement in probably every way, if not almost every way. The animation is much better, I think. Like, it's just much more fluid and much more inventive. Snow White kind of was a little bit jerky, like the you would see, like, the mouths not really, like, mouthing all the words a lot of times. Yeah, all the motions were very rudimentary. Yeah. Like, and it, they were functional and it works, you know. All of that action comes through, but it's not super expressive. Yeah, and I would say this movie looks pretty much as good as almost any other Disney movie. I mean, there's some, I think, that took a little bit more care on their animation, especially their backgrounds. But in general, this one feels like a Disney movie that was made in the 70s or whenever. Like, it doesn't feel like the second Disney movie, and it always surprises me that it was. I think there's a lot of really interesting things about this. Um, I guess maybe I'll go into those a little bit more. But yeah, I think this is a really great like classic coming-of-age tale that just like contains so much perfect allegory for what it's like to grow up. Yeah, I mean, this was absolutely, if not my favorite one as a kid, like absolutely at the top. I drew, you know, lots of moral lessons from all the stuff that I watched and loved growing up, but especially like Jiminy Cricket's Always Letting Your Conscience Be Your Guide and like learning right from wrong. And this time around, I definitely noticed the ways in which that's really put in the context of being a real boy and what it's like to be a real boy. And so I think in that way, gender is kind of more specifically established in this movie still. But also, you know, I feel like ultimately those are lessons that can be universally appreciated and drawn. And again, even though like there are things about it that are kind of seemingly all over the place or might have been incongruous if it were like an earlier production like Snow White was, you know, like having a talking cricket and like a fairy godmother type of figure granting wishes, like that that could have been done in a far less cohesive way, but it really does come together so well and it really does, I think, work as a great fairy tale. I loved it. I loved watching it. Yay! Um, Yay! And I loved it as a <laughs> child, and this was definitely one where I was like, oh my god, I know every frame. As soon as I see it, I'm, it just comes back oh, to me. Yeah. But I was really drawn into it. I watched a lot of these movies with the baby monitor, with my baby sleeping upstairs. And this movie, like, got to me. <laughs> with my baby upstairs. Like, all Geppetto wants is a family. <laughs> <laughs> and he has, like, these animals and these clocks. And he built a boy out of wood. And he just, what? And just, like, it just, like, touched me. And the whole movie definitely feels like an allegory, like a metaphor, you know? like time passes really like like it's a weird time he's off with um stromboli for like a night mm. <laughs> but then he's with the lost boy uh the, in neverland right no way pleasure, pleasure island pleasure island pleasure island um he's no pleasure <laughs> island no neverland is pleasure island this one came first okay <laughs> 
Pleasure Island. He's out <laughs> in Pleasure Island long enough for like cobwebs to form in Geppetto's right. place. So like time is weird. Um, it's interesting that you need magic to turn a wooden boy uh, to life, but there are cats and foxes walking around in suits, and there's also an island yeah. that turns boys into donkeys. <laughs> so, like, what's real, what's not? Like, what kind of world are we living in? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this movie has a very weird and a very Italian, I think, level of magical realism, yeah. I guess. I mean, it's a little bit more than realism, but it's weird because this one has some of the most implausible things that are in a lot of Disney movies. Like, a lot of them are... You know, we'll have, like, cute animals, Based but they're, like, kind of realistic. And this one has a lot of, like, crazy stuff that, yeah. you know, like, they all live, go live in a whale for a while. Yeah, like, it, it, felt like, um, it felt like the Odyssey or something, like, very Greek. Yes. Um, yeah. Especially, like, the whale thing, like... I have to save my father from the belly of a whale. And like, there's just, there was something about oh, yeah, biblical. Yeah. yeah. It just felt like, yeah, I really did love it. It really like the emotion in it. And I really like cared about Geppetto and Pinocchio and Jiminy. And I think that's what was missing from Snow White for me. I don't want to see Snow White die, but like, I don't really care. Cause I don't really know her. Mm-hmm. I don't really care about her relationship with the prince. Cause I don't know him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt like they just designed Pinocchio so well that I really cared about him. And I, and I felt like the thing that I didn't like about Snow White is like it was kind of like a negative thing. It was a cautionary tale. In this one, Pinocchio wants to do good and it's he's just making mistakes, but he's not a bad person. He is trying to achieve a goal. And so it's just like the steps along the way of how to achieve that goal to be like a good person and grow up. And there are missteps, but ultimately like there's an arc there for Pinocchio. Yeah, none of us could really identify what Snow White was about in a larger sense, and it could not be fucking clear for Pinocchio. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it is it is spelled out for you in a way that would almost feel insulting, except for it's just so perfectly done that it isn't. But, like, he's a wooden boy. The blue fairy comes down, brings him to life, but doesn't make him real yet, and assigns a actual, like, physical conscience to tell him, <laughs> you know, what's right and wrong, and he often does not listen to it. And, you know, she tells him he has to be brave, unselfish, and truthful. That's yeah, yeah, the one. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, being those three things is like the clear like goal that he has and it it really does make all the difference i also in this viewing particularly found myself really endeared to geppetto what a you're wonderful, older now mm, not that old it's because you made a wooden boy in your base because you're an old man chris next year aristocrat standy well if i'm an old man i hope i'm just like geppetto he's one of a handful of parents actually in disney movies that gets a large role there's not yeah. that many it's true. Again, like most of these kids are orphans. <laughs> or like a positive main role. Like he's that, not an evil. Yeah. 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 And doesn't die, uh, importantly. <laughs> yeah. And this is true of his character and I think the movie in general, but there's just something like sadder and more mature about him and his wanting of a boy that really like contrasts well with the sort of like almost silly fantasy elements. Or, and they're very broad fantasy elements. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it remind like in a way, like reminds me of like Pan's Labyrinth or something. Thing, this like extreme darkness it's with this melancholy. kind of very um, imaginative sense and yeah. really feels, I mean, a lot of it feels very epic to me. I think this is also, at least it's the only um, Disney movie I can think of that has like a series of villains and not one mm-hmm. main one. There's four. There's uh, Stromboli, Honest Stromboli. John, <laughs> The Coachman, and then Monstro. And they all like 
come in and then leave. Like, they're not, yeah. none of them, like, come back and again. I mean, I can think of Moana, but obviously that's, like, a million years later. <laughs> okay, I don't remember that very well. <laughs> There's I a lot of villains in that. Okay. The animation in this really blew me away, especially the clock design. Mm, there's like yeah. lo- there's full sequences yeah. where they're I like you the see clock all the clocks so um when like either they're dancing or Jiminy's um engaging with the clock pieces and I just thought it was just such such a treat to look at. It was yeah. gorgeous to look at. I think it was really also Disney doing what he had previously done so well, really well, but also adapting it into a feature, which is like the clock alone, the clock thing is like basically a short film. Like mm-hmm. that would be a charming short film totally. for ten minutes. And basically kind of that's what it is, is Jiminy Cricket just like looking at the clocks and all that. Like Snow White, like it had that with the dwarves, but I also think like Snow White in many ways, it was just a much easier film to animate. Like you had a a princess, obviously she's going to be beautiful. The dwarves, they're like, you know what a dwarf looks like. They're going to be funny and silly, but this was like a much harder movie to get right. Walt Disney like had a hard time figuring out what Pinocchio would look like because there were versions of him that were, looked a lot more wooden and they weren't endearing enough. And so they, they eventually kind of came up with making him basically look like a child, but with some wooden joints. So you still knew he was a wooden boy. But I think just in so many ways, there's a lot more risk taken here. I mean, this movie is dark as hell, for one thing. Like, yeah. It is scary. It really is. To me, it's just especially now, like rewatching it, having not seen this movie in probably at least 15 or 20 20 years, it really did kind of come across as like a perfect Homerian odyssey, but also kind of in a somewhat more modern, at least especially at the time kind of way, where it is talking about like the the perils of adult pleasures and joys will be there, but they can't define who you are as a person or you'll be really screwed. And those pleasures are uh, destroying homes, smoking cigars, and getting in fights. Sign me up for that too. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. That was intense, honestly. I it think was. A, I think a lot of this like went over my head as a kid. That's why I wasn't really scared of much as a kid, because I just didn't, like, understand it. But now I'm watching Pinocchio, and I'm like, holy shit. (laughs) Or, like, or I'm, like, really sad for Geppetto. Like, I'm really feeling it because I actually understand the story and can, like, fully ingest it as an adult. Yeah, what did you guys think of Jiminy Cricket as a character? I liked him. He felt very Jimmy Stewart. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, entertaining to watch. Like, I, I liked him. Yeah, and I took actual life lessons from movies like this. And, of course, there's, like, pure and relatively not really sarcastic at all. He's not really particularly funny at all. But I think he really does work as someone who you want in your corner. You know, and especially for someone so young, someone you want in your corner at that age to help you kind of learn the right lessons, uh, even when you do make mistakes. Yeah, in the book, and I think the early versions of the movie, he died or was gotten rid of, like, early in the movie. Uh, Pinocchio smashes him with a hammer in the book. (laughs) Oh, my God. That holds to what I said in the book. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've actually read the book. It's quite different in tone. But, yeah, I mean, I think it helps, really, to root this in a point of view, unlike kind of Snow White, which was just sort of a broader thing, and, like, the dwarfs didn't come in until later. I'm kind of just blown away by every aspect of this movie. I feel like it really differs from a lot of other Disney movies. Like, in that, like, the protagonist is actually, like, making choices and bad choices and suffers as a result. Like, I think a lot of times it's usually a villain who's Mm -hmm. after the protagonist and maybe they make, you know, like, 
a mistake here or there, but, like, this is much more about, like, pretty heavy, like, sins, like, lying and, you know, like, turning your back on your parents or... Things that are like pretty, like Indulging, realistic like things. Gluttony, yeah. Exactly. Well, it, and again, like putting an even finer point on it, like the the villains in this really are internal. At the end of the day, they're not the external villains, even though there are lots of people and creatures in Pinocchio's life that are trying to steer him down the wrong path. Like ultimately, what he has to challenge and face is something in himself. Yeah, and I think why the reason why those villains are so scary, especially as adults, is they're like much more realistic. Like their motivations are much more realistic than a lot of other villains. Um, Money. They're like deceitful. (laughs) Yeah, they're out for profit. Like, and that's those are they're the kind of people that you actually do meet, like in the world. Yeah, I thought it was a very good moral for a kid to be like, bad people may come to you seeming like your best friend. You know, they might not look villainous. They might be very chummy to you and, you know, you have to distinguish with your morals, you know, what you think is the proper path. Um, That shot of the coachman, is it the coachman? Mm -hmm. His face when he says they never come back as boys. It's It's a very haunting image. So memorable. (laughs) It was really freaky. (laughs) It was very freaky. I mean, that one thing alone puts him up as, like, the number one Disney villain for me. He would, like, look at the boys while writing, like, wherever, like, taking them to Pleasure Island, and he'd look at them, like, innocently, and then, like, smile to himself, and I'm like, you're a child molester. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. It was gross. The most relatable character in this movie, to me, is Figaro the cat. <laughs> I kind of knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I forgot all about Figaro, Aww. and I am now all about Figaro. <laughs> Is that why you came in here wearing whiskers and cat <laughs> yes. ears? I love Figaro so much. I love the character design. I love her attitude. It might be a guy. Um, I'm just calling it a her. I think it actually it is, is a, her. a boy. It's a no, boy. It's whatever, boy. Whatever. I love his attitude. I love that he's just like annoyed. He's like, I just want to get a night's sleep. And he has to like open the window or do this thing or that. Like, I just like, there's just, I feel like that could have been such a throwaway character, but I came off like loving this cat (laughs) yeah i think that's another reason this is such a quintessential disney movie is that even the tiny side characters have so much personality that Mm -hmm. you remember them even the cleo and cleo is so pretty even cleo Cleo i love cleo too it's kind of hot (laughs) (laughs) whoa things we learned about chris i think cleo was the base of the hot fish in in fantasia Mm -hmm. that we'll talk about later (laughs) Don't spoil the hot fish. (laughs) There's a line I like that I just want to state. Uh, What does an actor want with a conscious anyway? (laughs) Yes. That was one of the ones I loved. Yeah, there's a lot of really good like toss-off lines in a lot of these movies, but especially I think this one. Um, I really love that whole metaphor of like going off to be an actor instead of going to school. It just feels like such a... Hollywood. Such a thing that yeah. people would do. <laughs> that people do do. I'm gonna be an actor. God, the whole, just, I just can't... Go, I'm going back to the animation in my head of, like, him... First of when he's on strings, and Geppetto, he's still, like, a puppet. And just the way they animated him... It just was so impressive how they animated this puppet to move around. And then the, the animation with I've Got No String sequence. It was just so impressive. Yeah, I rewatched some parts of Pinocchio today. Um, again, just to, like, make sure that it was fresh in my mind. And, like, uh, the Got No String sequence is still just so fantastic yeah there's great song I mean obviously When You Wish Upon a Star became like the Disney song that plays like Mm -hmm. over their logo in every movie but Hi Ho obviously from Snow White was a big one but like this one has like several songs that are just like pretty much all great 
I yeah. liked, I mean, spoiler for <laughs> these movies, I liked all the original songs. They, I think all the original songs hold up. I didn't mention that I, I love the silly song from Snow White. Like, isn't this a silly song for everyone to sing? Like, the second that came up, I was like, oh, I love this. I was, like, singing along with it. <laughs> and I love these Pinocchio songs. Like, they're all so beautiful. Oh, yeah. And I've mentioned this on the show before, but I had audio cassette tapes that were officially Disney released of kind of compilations of these best original. Mm-hmm. Disney songs. So, like, the songs from these movies were in my ears even more than I was watching these movies because I would absolutely love to re listen to these songs and sing along. So, Stromboli is kind of racist, <laughs> right? He is a stereotype. <laughs> oh, he's a gypsy, right? Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it didn't really bother me, but I was like, uh, like, this is kind of. Stereotype? Oh yeah. Is he racist? I guess that's why I freeze well, it as a it's question. Like, it's it's a it's an ethnic stereotype. <laughs> All right. I wasn't sure if I should be offended or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think like culture in general, because I noticed this elsewhere in Disney, but in pretty much all of these movies, was very like these are what Russian people are like, and these yes. are what fresh. French people are like, mm-hmm. and really enjoy like putting out those cliches. Um, yes, and having the cliches stand in for any actual kind of character yeah i don't consider it like representation of any real form because it's more like hey recognize this very easy to deploy stereotype yeah it's more like this is exotic this is exotic i think exotic is a great word to describe it i mean and to me that immediately makes me think of disney world and disneyland like with epcot and like all of the nations of the world Mm -hmm. where really the only form in which it's showing the diversity of things is kind of in these easy stereotypes uh it's a small world after all (laughs) after all it is Thoreau Ravenscroft also did a voice in this as Monstro the Whale. Uh, really? Yeah, Wait, what is mon- What sounds do Monstro? Uh, roaring and, and sleeping, I think, are mostly. Uh, he was also the Grinch, uh, the song The Grinch, and uh, Tony the Tiger. So, another famous voice. And also, the uh, Blue Fairy, the actress who played her, was also the model for the original Columbia Pictures lady. Wow. The more you know. Since you brought it up, Thrill Ravenscroft was also the voice in Pink Elephants in Dumbo. Oh. Ravenscroft facts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to Fantasia. Fantasia was released November 13th, 1940. It was directed by 12 people. Oh my god. <laughs> it was written by Joe Grant and Dick Humor. That's right, Dick Humor. <laughs> it's my favorite kind. It is. <laughs> the budget was uh, $2.2 million. The box office was $83.3 million, though at the time, again, it did not uh, make its money back. Yeah, a lot of this was um, due to World War II kind of cutting off the European market, so these movies couldn't travel as much as they usually did, by the way. Like, that, like World War II in general, like, very, very heavily influenced probably, <laughs> well, yes, everything, and specifically probably all Walt, Walt Disney films, except for maybe Snow White, probably not as much. Um, because that was 1937. But really everything after that, like everything up until 1950 was very dictated by like how much they could spend and where they could release it. Nearly all of the reviews were positive. Um, the Chicago Tribune's May Tinney called the movie beautiful, but it is also bewildering. It is stupendous. It is colossal. It is an overwhelmingly ambitious orgy of color, sound and imagination. On the other hand, um, one critical review was written by Dorothy Thompson of the New York Herald. She was especially harsh. (laughs) She claimed that she left the theater in a condition bordering on nervous breakdown. 
because Fantasia was a remarkable nightmare. She compared the film to rampant Nazism, which she described as the abuse of power and the perverted betrayal of the best instincts. I don't know why she thought this, but I thought it was funny and I thought I would share. <laughs> she was going through some stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what she was. Yeah. Um, I don't see it. Yeah. Fantasia is a Nazi. That yeah, was basically her review. I don't get it. Um, some other people that were critical of the movie was the classical music community. Many took fault with Stokowski, which I believe was the arranger. They took issue with his rearrangements and abridgments of the music. Stravinsky, who was the only living composer whose music was featured in the film, did not like it. (laughs) (laughs) He uh, said the arrangement of Rite of Spring, the order of the pieces had been shuffled and the most difficult of them eliminated and criticized the orchestra's performance as well. So, not great when one of the people whose music (laughs) you feature in your movie is very critical of the movie. I mean, that happens with a lot of music movies. Well, and also, I'm not surprised at all that classical like the classical music community responded very negatively because they would always oppose any kind of new interpretation or pairing those old time honored pieces with new animation style oh yeah other composers and music critics um were critical because they were critical at the premise of the film itself saying that uh classical music paired with visual images would rob the musical pieces of their integrity right (laughs) Don't be, like, happy that a new audience will enjoy classical music, but yeah, it's just stupid. Plebeians. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Multiple media, what are you doing? No. Uh, some trivia about Fantasia. It wasn't always called Fantasia. Um, it was at first called the concert feature or musical feature. I think they did good to retitle it. Yes. That's a good change. Yes. <laughs> there was a contest at Disney held for uh, who could come up with a better title. Um, there were 1,800 suggestions. That orchestra movie. <laughs> and the favorite was Fantasia, which was an early working title. And uh, I didn't say who said this, but it, I have the quote, it isn't the word alone, but the meaning we read into it. I feel like it's a good title. It's a great title. Yeah. I think it's a brilliant it title. It is a great title, <laughs> like- yeah. For The Sorcerer's Apprentice, most of the segment was shot in live action, including a scene where a UCLA athlete was asked to run and jump across one of the studio's sound stages with barrels in the way, which was used for reference when Mickey is, like, going through the water. That's amazing. And the Pastoral Symphony segment, which is the uh, cent- the hot centaurs. Hot centaurs. <laughs> um, there was originally a black female centaur shining hooves and grooming the tails of white centaurs. And that was cut in this 1969 re-release for obvious reasons. Oh, and we're looking at a photo oh, and it is. Yeah. Yeah, she's, uh, she's problematic. <laughs> what did you guys um, think of Fantasia? Just to start off, I think that was a good edit. <laughs> Let's just begin there. <laughs> I had no idea this was released in 1940 because, again, for me, these movies exist so outside of linear time. But Fantasia, along with Pinocchio, were really two of my all-time Disney favorites, even from the time that I was a child. Now, with Fantasia, a large part of that is, of course, that I started taking piano lessons so young in my life, and I listened to almost exclusively classical music and Disney soundtracks. So, not just in terms of the movies I was watching at the time, but in terms of the music I was listening to and and really the music that I found the most adventurous and fascinating and unconventional even as far as classical music went, I was always blown away by this movie. 
in part because the animation, because this movie is composed of vignettes and isn't like a fully fledged feature film as such, there weren't like characters that were, you were going with the whole span of the movie and there were different animation styles and different little worlds that were part of the experience of watching Fantasia. And I really connected to that and thought that alone was really interesting even when I was a kid. But also, I was so blown away by how they were using these different animation styles and these different vignettes to accompany this classical music that at this point I already loved and these composers I knew by name. I felt even at the time that it really did elevate and place this music in a different and more interesting and musical context with the animation that accompanied it. Rewatching it now, I did feel kind of the weight of time that's passed, you know, because most of us don't have the attention span to listen to 15-minute musical pieces, no matter what is accompanying them. And the kind of lack of any through line and lack of any consistent characters made it feel longer than I think it actually was. So I, I don't think this is a movie that played as well to me revisiting it, but still, the fun of my memories for it really came through because it was a thing that was so specific to my little nerdy fandoms as a kid. Uh, yeah, for me, it's a really interesting bridge between Disney, which, uh, you know, every kid knows and probably loves, and something kind of sophisticated, which kids don't usually know or love. I remember, I'm pretty sure I saw this in the theater when it was re-released in 1990. I know my grandpa was a big fan, and it was very, like, special to be, you know, kind of taken to this movie that he loved, and I don't think the movie's really made for kids. Uh, I don't remember exactly what my reaction was. You know, I probably thought, parts of it were a little bit long but to be introduced to something that is like it's a very classy film and it's very impressive to see Walt Disney experimenting with so many different styles within one movie because it wasn't long after this that I think he pretty much solidified his style I think there were a few more experimental films and then you know after that like Disney's style is kind of Disney's style and there isn't a whole lot of innovation in the look of them Mm -hmm. um so I really enjoyed the fact that he was playing around with different things and that he was able to experiment with things. And I, th- I think it's really interesting to have this film that introduces something, you know, that brought something that's kind of considered to be a upper class enjoyment, like going to a symphony or an orchestra, you know, seeing live music. And it brought that to the masses in this really... I don't want to say lowbrow, but like animation is is a very widely appealing thing. So to take something kind of highbrow and lowbrow and mix it together, I think is very impressive. And, you know, a lot of the animation is really beautiful and very elegant. And then there's other ones like the one with the hippos and the elephants that feels much more Disney-like and silly. And just the fact that you get to go on all these journeys and that it kind of is a probably a lot of kids' introduction to classical music. Yeah, I mean, I, I really admired the film for that. It does feel a little long. I mean, I think the narration bits between aren't super helpful now, just because 
that eventually became a screaming contest on our part. Yeah. <laughs> we did yeah. not drive him off screen, unfortunately. We, we watched this together, and I, I think it's not maybe the best, like, kind of party movie to watch with the I group. I thought it would be, but... Yeah, I think that it needed that in 1940, a little bit more hand-holding, because I think you had to kind of explain more to audiences what they're about to see and why you're showing it to them. Now, and I think probably in Disney 2000, there's less... I know that they are, they introduced the pieces, but there's probably less of that. Yeah, like, that part doesn't really hold up just because it's not done in a particularly interesting way and uh, I'm, I'm not really a big fan of in general like mixing live action and animation or at least particularly in this I mean you can do you can do it well but I think in this movie um, like going between live action and animation doesn't particularly work but um, yeah I mean overall I think it's a very very impressive film and a very important film you guys are way more eloquent than me I have one note <laughs> And the note is, I'm bored. Wow. <laughs> I was really bored. There were some segments I liked or I liked parts of. I liked the centaurs up until a point where I'm like, I'm bored. I get it. <laughs> like, it's going on forever. <laughs> this is one of the ones that I definitely watched as a kid, but didn't watch as often as like Pinocchio or Dumbo because there's no narrative. But also just some of it is so long. It's so long. It goes on forever. Well... That is what classical music does. You're meant to listen to the music. And I think <laughs> with with this movie is like really like obviously the, the sequences are not particularly story driven. I think that number one thing is supposed to be the music and you're supposed to be enjoying that. And the visuals are kind of like a, an accompaniment to that in a way. Well, I don't have a problem with the premise. So I saw Fantasia 2000 when it came out in theaters. and I also just watched it today and I love it <laughs> and I think it's great. And I think that they solved all the problems that I had with the original Fantasia because it is paced so much better. There are definitely intros to the sequences, but they're very short. They're with famous people you know. (laughs) They're entertaining to watch. Like, there's, like, little jokes or something. They don't have to explain, this is what music is, and you listen with your ears, and we're going to present you music. The produce sounds. (laughs) You're going to be looking at images and hearing music at the same time. Like, they don't do any of that. And all of the sequences... Um, have some sort of, like, they have a story. Even the abstract one has a a sort of, like, there's a story happening there. It isn't just, like, images. Um, I think they all have a story in original fantasy, too. Maybe they have a compelling story. (laughs) Maybe. A faster-paced story, Yeah, just the pacing is better. Like, it it doesn't, like, it's not a slog anywhere. Like, it's, like, done, 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 next segment, next segment. And they're not all, like, snippy-snappy. Like, some are a little bit more graceful, but, like, you're entertained and what's happening on screen and my problem with a lot of the Fantasia sequences not all of them but a lot of them are just like uh like I'm just so bored like I like the Sorcerer's Apprentice and I think that's probably the best one out of all of them because what's happening on screen is is engaging (laughs) and they're and it's it keeps going the story is going I don't know that's funny to me because I feel like the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence while still very fun is also the most Disney saying, look at me, I'm Disney. This is a Disney thing. And maybe that's just because it's a thing that stars Mickey Mouse's central character. Um, But, I mean, to me, the sequences that always stood out the most were like the dinosaur sequence. And I mean, now the animation to that looks especially silly, like compared to something like Jurassic Park. You know, but... Um, you know what? I can't even remember the, the dinosaur sequence, and we just watched I, it. I liked the dinosaur <laughs> sequence. I liked the sexy centaurs. Um, I liked... They were sexy. And I also really liked the Satan sequence. 
which I is that the Rites of Spring? Is that the Night Stravinsky? Night Mountain. Mountain. That is oh, my okay. favorite by yeah. far. I think that's yeah. I mean, it's it's just the most I think distinct from the rest. Just and I like dark things. I guess <laughs> I like evil hell. Well, yeah, and I mean, like that's that's an easy thing I can draw as an overall conclusion from all these Disney films. Is I always felt Disney was at its most interesting, compelling, and kind of timeless when it was doing really dark imagery. Whether that was like dark in the mythological sense, like there's a kind of satanic figure in this, or just like dark in the sense of being foreboding and slightly dangerous. Like I really do think those kind of moments in this hold up the most. I really love the animation. You know, the animation is very impressive. And I like the idea of it, but it's probably one of my least favorites, I think. Are we going to talk about the Oriental Mushrooms? <laughs> are we going to talk about them? Oh, yeah, that was a Nutcracker suite. Yeah, I mean, are, what it's there, it's just, is it racist? We were trying to talk about that while yes. we were watching it. <laughs> yes, it's completely, it is completely racist. What's more sense. racist, Stromboli or the or the mushrooms? <laughs> well, given that Asian Asia is a continent and not just one particular country like italy (laughs) is i i think this is more racist but is that racist okay so then is the russian dancing parsnips or whatever they are carrots are they racist too (laughs) well and i didn't really bring it up at the time but like the gypsy stuff that's gypsies are jewish folks and like romany popular like again it's it's there there was no concept of representation at this time Mm -hmm. you know so at the time, and for many decades afterward, before our kind of collective cultural context caught up to it, this was what inclusion meant. This was representation, because it was naming the and, and pointing out the actual existence of cultures that were not American. But like in this, the, the sequence where there are these orientalized, is the word I would use, like orientalized characters, I, I do find it very kind of racially reductive. I think racially reductive is a good word for it. I, yeah. And a good yeah. word for a lot of what we'll see from Disney at this area, mm-hmm. era versus racist, which I think is a little different. And, and I actually do think that's a worthwhile distinction to draw um, because I don't think that even putting the like the kind of historical context aside, it doesn't seem like they're trying to make a particularly pernicious point about those people or about what those characters represent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, originally, Mickey Mouse was not even going to be the... Sorcerer's Apprentice? Yeah, (laughs) or at least uh, Walt Disney, there were people who were trying to talk him out of it. But this was really intended to be, in a way, Mickey Mouse's comeback, because he'd kind of fallen out of favor a little Mm. bit, or he just maybe wasn't in enough stuff. So that was, I think, the original, like inspiration for this entire thing so in a way it's good that he used the restraint that he had and only put him in one this was the movie when i was kind of doing some research that really made walt disney feel so much like a james cameron figure to me because a lot of theaters had to like revamp their entire sound systems to be Mm -hmm. able to have a movie like this like this was only i think less than 15 years after sound films were a thing and although a lot of it is not necessarily like synced sound in the the classical sense of like dialogue but I mean I just think like at the time people must have been so blown away to see animation that's geared toward adults and that's not like silly you know presented on screen in this way and and just to like be able to you know have a like a 
symphony experience in a movie theater was a rare thing. This might have been the first time anyone had seen dinosaurs. I know that they were in some kind of like King Kong kind of movie, so I don't know if that was like before this or after this, but just like dinosaurs animated or things like this. So I think this was probably like pretty mind blowing. Like it, I can see it that. was probably like oh, a yeah. good like two thousand one. Exactly, of- two thousand one was the exact kind of comparison I was thinking, or even like laser light shows almost. You mm-hmm. know that yeah. like when they do did laser light shows in the seventies with like a Pink Floyd soundtrack, like. There is, I think, something about a multimedia experience like that that really can help it be transcendent to just the couple forms that you're smashing together. Yeah, I think this is one that would really probably benefit a lot from seeing it in the theater. Yeah, probably. And that was another thing I like. I, I don't know if any of y'all looked up, but I, I know that I've seen the original Fantasia in a theater, but I certainly know I saw Fantasia 2000 in a theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really, I feel like both of those movies would work even now if you saw them in a theater with a crowd of people. I'm surprised they're not shown more. And in general, that Disney films are not shown more these days in theaters because they don't really do the re-releases all that often anymore. Because they have to promote their new release. They have like a release every year, a new one. And they did that for Snow White and for a a lot of these. Well, it started with Snow White because this movie didn't make a profit either at the time. And neither did Pinocchio. So they were like, well, let's re-release Snow White. People like Snow White. (laughs) Um, So then it became a trend of theirs to every seven years um, re-release their movies. Mm. And I don't, I like, I appreciate the, the idea behind this. And I really wish they did take more risks. Like, I, I like the idea of, of Fantasia a lot. Well, and it just made me really think about how, like, I, I do love movies that are kind of created out of vignettes. Um, but those are so few and far between. Like, Wild Tales, this Argentinian oh, yeah. movie from several years ago. So um, just, I mean, I love it for a lot of reasons. Like, it's super funny and thoughtful and the different vignettes are so clever and well done. But even just that form itself of a feature film that's stitched together from some shorts, I think is the kind of thing that I. it's surprising to me it isn't more common now. Buster Scruggs just came out, but that's an anomaly. That's true. That's true. I think Buster Scruggs is kind of the last most recent one in memory yeah. of something that even attempted that. It's not often. Yeah, Walt Disney's original intention was to have this movie updated every so often with new segments and to kind of recycle some and then have new ones. And I think that would have been a really awesome document to like be able to watch Fantasia and how it evolved, say if it was released once even a decade. It could have been really great. And it's really a shame that, I mean, mostly because of World War II, like this movie just wasn't able to really reach an audience and didn't have the success that they couldn't make another one for 60 more years. Let's move on to Dumbo! 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 I got a peanut for you. (laughs) Not a line from the movie. Not a line. line. Apocryphal. We also watched Dumbo together, and all of my childhood, me and my sister would say to each other, Dumbo, I got a peanut for you. It's not a line in the movie. I thought it was. That's a line from Bambi. (laughs) I've never been more grateful to be an only child. (laughs) Dumbo the Magnificent was released on October 23rd, 1941. Look out! Pink elephants on parade! Here they come! Hippity hoppity! They're here! And there are big elephants everywhere! Look out! Look out! They're walking around the bed! On their head! Clippity hoppity! Parade! 
in Great Big Elephants on Parade. The supervising director was Ben Sharpstein. It was written by Otto Englander, Joe Grant, and Dick Humer. It was based on a book written for a novelty toy. <laughs> yeah, it was a roller book. Yeah, a roller book. Which, Wait, what? It was like a machine, and you would like literally roll it, and the pages would come. Like it's hard to like a Rolodex. Y- I guess yeah, so. Yeah, kind of like that. What? <laughs> yeah. What? Dumbo is one of the few Disney movies that people kind of think is an original story, but it's actually, it was based on that. Yeah. So the roller book, that was not made by Disney? Was no. that just no. made by no. s- an author or an inventor? What, like, that's fascinating to me in and of itself. The budget for Dumbo was 950000 The box office was $1.6 It has the distinction of being the lowest-earning theatrically-released Disney animated movie ever. And yet it was the only profitable one of these besides Snow White, right? Yes, it was profitable, but not by much. (laughs) And it was the lowest-earning... Like, I looked up the uh, box office for every single Disney animated movie, and this is the lowest. (laughs) VHS sells, obviously, and now DVD sells. I mean, Dumbo, I'm sure, has made money now, but, like, it was just funny to... uh, to see that it was re-released uh only four times which is less than a lot of these other movies oh yeah i have right that here. is so surprising 1949 <laughs> 1959 1972 and 1976 one of the things that i think why it wasn't released as much is because it's only an hour long <laughs> so it's not even like a complete movie length it was actually made to be a money saver it was supposed to be simple and cheap because wow. they were they had just lost money with their last two movies the war was you know basically bleeding the company and they're like okay you need to simplify this and i'm sure part of that was making the movie short so you can tell a lot of the lack of detail seen in previous movies um character designs are simpler background paintings are less detailed even though it cost less and didn't make much it did have good reviews variety said that dumbo was a pleasant little story plenty of pathos mixed with large doses of humor a number of appealing new animal characters lots of good music and the usual disney skillfulness and technique it won the oscar for best original score and was nominated for best song for baby mine what song is better than Baby Mine in 1941? Who knows? Should we find out? <laughs> <laughs> we don't, I don't want to know. So there was an animator strike during production. Much of the Disney studio staff went on the strike, um, and a number of strikers are caricatured in the feature as clowns who go to hit the big boss for a raise. Wow. The strike lasted five weeks and ended the family atmosphere and camaraderie at the studio. <laughs> That continues to this day. Interesting. (laughs) Um, So Time Magazine had plans to honor Dumbo as Mammal of the Year, like the way they do like Person of the Year. Uh Then Pearl Harbor happened (laughs) and they opted for a more serious cover. So he didn't get the cover of Time Magazine that year. Wow. (laughs) So what do you guys think of Dumbo? I'm sorry. What do you think of Dumbo the Great? It's so funny to me that this wasn't the highest grossing because this was... Definitely one of the highest grossing in my heart. Um, <laughs> How much did you pay per, per viewing in your heart? I paid three hugs <laughs> per view. <laughs> this was absolutely, again, far up there along with Fantasia and Pinocchio's, like the ones that were one of the ones that was my favorite from a kid. 
um, especially the character of Dumbo. And it's funny because, like, I I had relatively a, a pretty happy childhood. Like, my my parents were together. I grew up with my mother. But like the story and subplot about like separation of that child from the mother was so visceral to me at the time. Like as a little kid, and especially even now. Like, really, what song is better than Baby Mine? <laughs> like, Baby Mine is such a heart rending moment to watch in that movie and again like even at the time it hit me emotionally so hard even though I had no real life analogs to kind of compare that to or be drawing emotion from but the like primal and simple nature of those character relationships is so well established in my mind that it really works and is very dramatic and emotional. I remember almost every second of all of these movies, but I remember every frame of this fucking movie. Um, just every single second, like the the voice of the stork, who was actually the same uh, voice actor, Sterling Holloway, who was Winnie the Pooh and Ka in the Jungle Book. Um, the the train saying, I think I can, I think I can, I mm-hmm. think I can, when it went up the hill. And then I thought I could. I thought I could. I thought I could. The traveling circuit. Like, so much of this movie was just immediately proximal to mm-hmm. me. Even though it's not a thing that I revisit, even though it's not a thing I really think about at all. It was especially fun to watch this one just because of how much it brought back to me. Yeah, I feel like this movie is very accessible for young kids. Obviously, young kids will see all these movies, but I think there are certain things in Pinocchio and Snow White that kids either don't connect to or maybe kind of over their heads. And I think this one really connects on a like one-on-one level with kids. Like it's the circus. Like it just feels and the, and the, and I, something about the animation being so simple also makes it just feel like more for kids than some of these other movies a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate this movie. I think, I mean, I guess it has the first like real emotional, like Dumbo's not an orphan technically, but his mom gets locked up. And so he's kind of without a mother for most of the movie. So I think this is definitely one of the movies that gets cited as, you know, kind of perpetuating that orphan, uh, orphan child thing that happens in Disney and later in Don Bluth movies. Just by comparison to the rest of these movies, I have to say this one is, I guess, the least innovative or impressive in a lot of ways. But that's kind of unfair because I think the other ones are so groundbreaking in so many ways. And this is like a perfectly great movie with classic moments and a couple of moments of really, really great animation. I love this movie. I had such a fun time watching this movie. And just like Seth, like, it all came coming back to me. Cool boy. And I agree. Like, it's funny, like, when you were saying it's not as well animated as the others, like, it, it isn't. I didn't write down any shots that I was like, this is amazing. But, like, the story is great. The emotion is great. The characters are great. And that's all that really matters. You could just have lines on, you know, just lines on a cell animate them and if they're engaging characters like it doesn't really matter i really love circus iconography in my life and watching this again i was like it probably came from this movie (laughs) that i just love like the organ music and just like the the tent well this was a thing i actually thought of while we were watching it together and like wanted to ask y'all like did you go to circuses when you were kids yeah for sure okay because i went to them a ton it was very much a big thing in the south i love the circus i still love the circus um 
Yeah, I just love all of that. The like the flying trapeze and the animals and just like the look of circuses. And th- this movie was full of it. <laughs> so I was just like all about it. That movie has a lot of circus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the tops are big. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Calm down, Steamboat Willie. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the music was so good, like the score and the songs I thought were so good. I loved all the songs. Um, I just I just thought it was so fun. It's and it's so there there's the the pacing is great. It it should be an hour. You know, I mean That's I <laughs> if anything that ended up being pleasantly surprising to me. I heard it was that short just before we watched it together and I was like, "Wait, so does that mean that they will have, you know, like not told a lot of the story that clearly needs to be told with these characters or like what what form will that take?" But weirdly, I think it is the rare type of movie that works at an hour of length. Like that it doesn't feel like there's anything missing. Yeah. That was also a budget thing. I think there was another 10 minutes that they wanted to make and just couldn't. So <laughs> That's well, also not surprising. <laughs> I, I guess just like watching it now, I was like, where are the lines on my screen? Because <laughs> I used to watch it on a taped VHS that was taped from the Disney Channel because it was, it was Ferdinand the Bull and then oh Mickey and the Beanstalk. And then it was Dumbo and it was taped off Disney Channel. And so everything was like, you know, the tracking lines... Or, like, things were wobbly. So just seeing it on, like, a crystal clear DVD, or maybe Blu-ray, I forgot we watched, but it was like, oh my god, I can We watched the Blu-ray versions, like, high-def versions of all of these, and it was such a strange feeling at first, but then I think really added to it, like, to really see the beauty of this hand-drawn animation in a more faithful, kind of restored version like the Blu-rays are. Like, I I don't think I'd ever actually seen them other than in the theater the one time that I would have seen each of these movies in a theater. Um, I I hadn't seen them in such a pristine format before. I find it interesting that Dumbo is the main character and he does not talk. Hmm. And neither will you guys. (laughs) I just thought that was really interesting. That was an interesting choice to not have him talk. And it it didn't really bother me. And I'm wondering why it doesn't. No, and in a way you don't notice. Like, he doesn't feel like he's lacking any character for not actually speaking. Yeah, and I think actually, if anything, maybe that's part of the success of this movie, even though it's not like treading a ton of new ground, is that the expressiveness of the character himself speaks for him in a way that his dialogue doesn't have to. Like, I I do think like, it was weird to all of us watching it, like, why they're so mean to Dumbo for having big ears. But having that as that kind of reference point does make it that he is a really expressive character does kind of draw you into his perspective on the world and makes it very clear the ways that everyone else is seeing him. Um, So I do think it's kind of one of those narrative dramatic things that works. Yeah, I really enjoy the bitch elephants. Uh, (laughs) Oh my God, the elephants are assholes. mean pachyderms. Their names are Prissy, Giddy, Caddy, and Elephant Matriarch. And awful. (laughs) (laughs) And that bitch over there. Um, and the, the other thing I always really loved about Dumbo was the elephants on parade sequence. Oh, of course. Um, I, again, just learning the years of these movies was such a funny experience for me because this movie in 1941 has an overtly psychedelic, outright trippy mm-hmm. musical video sequence that comes 
almost out of nowhere, um, several decades before psychedelic was a concept. Yeah. Yeah, it really feels a bit like a holdover from Fantasia. (laughs) Absolutely. In this moment where they're singing the song Pink Elephants on Parade, there's a kind of story justification for it, you know, where it's like someone poured beer or some kind of... Absinthe. Champagne. Uh, Absinthe. Oh, was it absinthe? Champagne. I think it's absent. <laughs> yeah, some kind of boozy substance gets poured into the water that all of these elephants are drinking from, and and Dumbo drinks from this water bucket that has it in that, and he basically trips the fuck out. <laughs> Him and Timothy. In that whole sequence, they completely change the animation style, the color palette, almost everything about the movie that you've been watching this whole time. And what they do with the lighting and the use of color in this in this sequence mm-hmm. is really incredible. It's visually so striking even now. And it's also kind of scary and feels threatening in a way that's not really tied to the characters, that's not really tied to any bad guy that they're encountering, but is just really successfully menacing in a way that I found and still find really impressive. Oh, it's that elephant made of elephant heads. <laughs> That was oh, the that scary too. one. That too. That was the scary one. I love that. Se- I mean, who doesn't love that sequence? It's funny that people are like, they find it so like inappropriate that like Dumbo gets drunk basically and has that sequence. And maybe something like that would never happen today, but I'm glad it happened then because it's very... Oh yeah, I'm sure nothing like that yeah. or like Pleasure Island would be done in a Disney movie now. Not to that degree, no. But like, I think it at least for a while feels like a good deterrent for drinking like, <laughs> like that doesn't make you want to drink that no. looks scary no yeah. i noticed that this movie had a lot of pinocchio parallels they both have single parents they're both exploited performers the cricket and the mouse are very similar characters mm-hmm. and serve a very similar function both pinocchio and dumbo get drunk which is maybe oh yeah the only time that happens with Disney protagonists. Yeah. And they also uh, hate redheads. <laughs> That's true. Gingers are the pariahs of the Disney universe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's weird how we don't talk about that more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the redhead child is like a very negatively stereotyped. Is it because of Irish? The Irish I guess. <laughs> yeah. Like up and like through like problem child and maybe even later. Like, I don't know. Redhead has always been like bad kid and I'm not really sure maybe because it's just uncommon and again i i think we need to bring up uh the racially reductive element <laughs> of this movie which one uh, <laughs> i would say the crows are the oh, biggest because i want to bring up i want to bring up the song of the roustabouts oh that's there too we work all day work all night we Before we get to the crows, can I please sing you some of the lyrics in this song? 
So a roustabout is a worker or a deckhand, typically on an oil rig, but in this situation, it is for a circus. We work all day. We work all night. We never learn to read or write. We're happy-hearted roustabouts. When other folks have gone to bed, we slave until we're almost dead. We're happy-hearted roustabouts. We don't know when we get our pay, and when we do, we throw our pay away. And all of these workers are black men, (laughs) which I did not realize when I was little because... I think the tape was so bad that I just saw like shadowy characters, but it's very clear on this pristine Blu-ray we watched like that it is faceless black men. (laughs) Yeah, it's both the fact that they're like clearly non-white and the fact that they are clearly faceless and featureless. Yeah. Yeah, there's also a line that says, uh, grab that rope, you hairy ape. Oh, I forgot that one. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, I want to, like, step in and, like, maybe slightly defend the Song of the Roustabouts. You would. (laughs) You talk about Roustabouts in every episode. We have to cut away from it. Defend. (laughs) So, I mean, it is a fact that probably the people doing the labor for a circus were black men at this time, I would assume. So I think the choice is either to not show it and, like, have no black men in this movie except for the crows at all (laughs) it's very weird for this movie to actually stop and like consider the laborers who are actually putting this together and i think that there is a sense of this movie really considering how the circus operates and is put together because you see a lot of sad things that happen to the animals they are locked up in cages they are kind of tormented and that's something that's an aspect of the circus that has been focused on a lot recently but i don't think was particularly highlighted before like people are like oh the circus it's fun and i i kind of enjoy that this movie has like a moment to just like show us these laborers and to me the song like i don't think there's any way to really it's not a happy song like it feels Mm -hmm. like a very kind of i don't know mournful song in a way i feel like it is meant to be kind of ironic that they're saying they're happy hearted it's not like zippity doodah like that's Mm -hmm. not what the song sounds like and so i feel like it is this moment that calls attention to these kind of side characters who are putting this together um it is a little weird that they don't have faces uh i don't know what to say about that but I appreciate that that song is in here because it just adds a lot of history and context to this that otherwise, like, you probably wouldn't think about, like, who builds the circus and Oh, and but I don't on. think it adds actual history or context, like, because I don't think those characters or their work really get a voice in it other than how it's immediately advancing the plot. And again, this is this is kind of, like, outside of the realm of discussion of what we're talking about here, but the kind of actual labor practices of Walt Disney toward the animators were always a really disputed and contentious thing. Like the big blowups with the animators themselves were the drivers of so many of these eras of Disney animation. And I feel like there is a way in which labor is only discussed in Disney movies in a way that is, I, I don't know, just kind of kind of elided in this way. And, and the laborers, the actual workers, the people doing all the toil to build all these worlds isn't really a part of it because the things that we're focusing on are the individual characters having their individual journeys. Well, this is the movie that has the clowns protesting their own like labor and going on strike. It has the animals kind of rebelling in a way against 
the labor that they're forced to do. And I feel like this goes in with that and that like there's really no reason to show the scene or have them all sing a song unless it's serving some kind of purpose. And I don't think it's just like, oh, we're setting up the circus because then it would be a much more like happy happy song. Like this is actually like Mm. kind of a dark song. It's a dark scene. Like it takes place like during a storm and they're like slaving away. No pun intended. Well, well, this is (laughs) that is what they say. I don't have a problem with this. I like the song and I like the inclusion of this sequence and I like how it's done. I just think in retrospect, some of these lyrics would be changed because they're black men. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're faceless. Yeah. It's because they're yeah. faceless black men who are laboring, who are seen as illiterate, not bad with money, slaving away. Yeah. <laughs> it's the combination of all those things where yeah. looking at it from today, it's just like, uh, this is weird. Like, you know what I mean? I like yeah. the song, but just it's a little like uh, a little a little cringy from today's perspective. I, I don't know. I like that cringiness in a way. And I think it adds texture to the movie. So let's talk about the other possibly cringy song. <laughs> the Crows. One of the Crows, his name is Jim Crow. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did not look that up. So That's really the worst oh, thing. Oh. Yeah. See, I seen all that too. I seen a peanut stand and heard a rubber band. I seen a needle that winked its eye. But I'd be done seeing about everything when I see an elephant fly. What'd you say, boy? I said when I see an elephant fly. I seen the front porch swing, heard a diamond ring. I seen a polka dot railroad tie, but I'll be done seeing about everything when I see an elephant fly. Okay, so I wa- we watched this together, but I was like watching the sequence again, and I was like. There's something problematic about this, but the crows are seen in a positive light. They're kind of poking fun of Dumbo. They're not, like, super mean. They're just kind of poking fun of him. And then they, like, you know, they're on his side the rest of the movie. And they kind of help him. I mean, they're kind of, like, they give him a fake feather, you know. But, like, I mean, they're, I don't know. They're, like, uh, taking the piss out of him. (laughs) And they're fun. And they're, like, it's just because they are obviously supposed to be black men. And they sing, like, got the whole hipster jazz thing. But is that... I guess that's just a debate. Like, is that racist to just, like... Yes. (laughs) Okay. No, it it is. You know, because stereotypes don't have to be solely negative and have solely negative connotations to be really racist stereotypes and tropes. And the trope of the black man who is the helper, you know, whether that is the kind of magical black man or just, like, the wisecracking sidekick helpful black man... Like, that's still a very much racist trope. I would not go with the word racist. I think, like, what you said, racially reductive is a really good term for this, in that it is a very unnuanced look at a race of people and kind of, you know, classifying them all in a very broad way. But I also, like, kind of have to admire this film for even including them because i mean gone with the wind was like a couple years earlier and had you know black characters who were literally slaves so few other movies even like considered black characters and let alone like made them kind of integral parts of the story and positive parts of the story where they're Really, aside from uh, Timothy Mouse, like they're the ones who are encouraging him, and I and the fact that the whole movie is about 
these characters who are marginalized for being different, I think is a really important element that like Dumbo kind of finds that solidarity with the crows. Yeah, I definitely think that it would be made differently today and that there's a lot of problematic like simplification of a lot of issues, but I mean for 1941, I mean I mean this was like 25 years before segregation was ended. I mean I I have to kind of commend this a little bit for being much more progressive than most of the films I've seen of this era. But I mean, the the truth of the context that you're adding to this, to me, doesn't take away from not just how racially reductive it is, but like the fact that, because no, these aren't, the characters themselves are crows. The characters are not black men. The characters are anthropomorphized crows whose only personality is that they speak you know, like, African-American vernacular English, and act like the stereotypes of Black men at the time. You know, and that's kind of a fine line, but but I also don't, like, buy into the claim that because they are positive and encouraging characters that that makes them less racist. Racism itself exists independently of how people actually act, you know, and, like, there, there are tons of, you know, like, there are tons of stereotypes that are racist that are positive things. Like, there are, like, you know, many of the stereotypes about Asian Americans are set in a more positive context, but that doesn't make them any less unrealistic. And I do, Chris, mostly come down where you're coming down in the sense that for the time, it is very progressive. And not just for the time, but in the specific context of this movie, these characters are positive encouraging what little of their personalities we know does not exist to you know harm or minimize anyone else they're just there to help and be friendly i don't know maybe that kind of dividing line is a kind of subjective thing and maybe just that way that their dialect is so specifically black um and so specifically stereotypically black is what makes them stand out more to me now but this is one that i had a harder time kind of looking past those surface level aspects of it Let's move on to a movie that has no people at all. <laughs> Bambi. Those are birds. Burr. Burr. Look, he's starting to talk. Burr. He's trying to say bird. Say bird. Burr. Bird. Bambi was released August 9th, 1942 in London and August 13th in New York City. Um, The supervising director was David Hand. It was written by seven people based on Bambi, A Life in the Woods by Felix Salton. The budget was 858,000. The box office was 267.4 million. 
Bambi was re-released in 1947, 1957, 1966, 1975, 1982, and 1988. I was there. <laughs> Not for all of them. Just Not the last for one. all of them. Oh my God, you're a time traveler. And all you do and, is go watch Bambi. And this is how we find out? Like, really? I killed Hitler in there oh, somewhere, thanks. too. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> the Bambi part's more interesting to me, really. It had Oscar nominations for Best Sound, Best Song for the opening track, Love is a Song, and Best Original Music Score. Reviews. It actually received mixed reviews at the time, mainly because of the lack of fantasy elements in the film and the objection towards a dramatic story of animals and their struggle to survive in the woods and avoid the threat of humans. Hunters were against the film. That's shocking to me, really. Yeah. The editor of Outdoor Life magazine, Raymond <laughs> Brown, wrote that the film was the worst insult ever offered in any form to American sportsmen. American sportsmen can take it. Yeah. I love that the villain of man is not even seen in the movie and and they took such offense. A little trivia for Bambi is that Donnie Dunnigan voiced young Bambi at the age of seven years old. By this age, he was already the family's main breadwinner because he had starred in a bunch of movies, including Son of Frankenstein. But Bambi was his last role. At 18, he joined the army and he became the Marine's youngest ever drill instructor. He served three tours in Vietnam. He was wounded several times, retired in 1977 with the rank of major. And he never told anybody he was the voice of Bambi because if anybody... um, in training or you know his off his fellow soldiers or officers uh found out he voiced bambi he would never hear the end of it <laughs> but i found that really there's funny. so much about that that's just so healthy <laughs> i think that he was probably right <laughs> oh no he's surely accurate and that's what's sad about it <laughs> are you kidding but go on i can totally it's justifiable one other piece of trivia, man is in the forest was a code phrase used by Disney employees when Walt Disney was coming down the hallway. Oh my god, what? <laughs> That's amazing. I feel like I want to use that too for like when I see someone hot, like... Man is in the forest. Man is, man is, in, the is forest. in the forest. But it shouldn't be a bad thing. 11 o'clock. <laughs> I mean, it usually ends badly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it ends up there, Becky, but it starts encouraging. All right, what did you guys think of Bambi? May I start this time? Well, maybe you should address the question to yourself then, but Becky, sure. how did you feel about Bambi? Well, Becky. <laughs> um, I'm just going to take off Seely. My baby was there on the monitor while I watched this movie alone, and I cried. <laughs> I cried when Bambi's mom died. I was blown away by this movie. I loved this movie when I was little, and I can't believe I haven't watched it in decades. And I was just so blown away. I loved it. I thought it was gorgeous. Beautiful movie. So simple, but like just emotionally, it just like got me. I was really blown away by it. I was similarly really emotionally affected by it, both when I was a kid and rewatching it now, especially in retrospect, learning the dates of all these movies. Bambi came out in 1942. And this time around, I really felt like the extent and thoroughness of the kind of sweetness and light in this movie really seemed like an attempt to pretty directly avoid what was happening in the world at the time. I definitely think this was one of the, like Bambi was one of the characters I had that I found the most quotable, like with my parents, um, like, you know, like talking about being Twitter pated, um did the young prince fall down <laughs> oh yeah like pretty flower like there's so many pretty things bird. Pretty flower bird. Bird. Pretty bird. 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 yeah there's definitely a yeah. lot of quoting and this yeah. movie has like a hundred lines of dialogue <laughs> right right again and it's like it's it's 
I think it's a real mark of this movie's quality and economy that there are relatively so few lines and they're so memorable. I really still find the animation of this movie stunningly beautiful. There are so many sequences and images that I remembered and that stuck to mind. The image of Bambi's father telling him his mother's been killed. He's it's like just his the silhouette of yeah. his face and antlers behind this kind of um starlight like curtain of snow falling down in front of him. Um there are just so many sequences in this movie where the animation is is not just beautiful for being hand drawn, but just stunning on its own artistic merits. Uh, Becky used the exact same words I was going to use, blown away. This was the movie of these five that I had the least certainty going into it, how I would feel about it. watched it a lot as a kid, and I think when you're a kid, it's a, it's a kind of a slower movie. There's a lot of, like, cuteness and, like, memorable lines, but there's also a lot of stillness and kind of maturity that, like, it's not Dumbo where there's a lot of circusy stuff, like, in every scene and you're kind of carried through it. Like, it's, it's much more of a, in many ways, like an art film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so very unlike, I think, any of these other films. And, and so I really just had not seen this in so long and was really intensely just kind of like it's an instant masterpiece to me Mm -hmm. i mean not that it's instant for anyone else but (laughs) for me i was like wow this is like right up there with pinocchio as i think one of the greats of all time and as much as i love pinocchio i think that this movie is so impressive for how simple and spare it is there's very little story i mean it's basically just life is the story and it's another coming of age tale and unlike a lot of disney movies there's nothing really magic about it there's no weirdness like obviously the animals are talking to each other but besides that like anything in this movie could and and does happen like all the time and that's very rare for man that's the point of it that it's happening every year like the circle of life continues Mm -hmm. Yeah, this movie deals with time in such a more direct and human way, even though these characters are all animals. Like, it really is about the passing of seasons and and the passage of time. Yeah, and it's weird that it is so specific to animals and a specific ecosystem. Like, a lot of Disney movies will kind of mix different animals or you know, don't take a lot of care to, like, think about the actual, like, ecosystem of animals. But this one is actually feels like these animals would be in the same spots with each other. And that feels so well-researched and was very well-researched by the makers of this movie, but also that it feels very universal and relatable, which is odd because (laughs) it's about a deer, you know, and and thing like, we don't all have hunters coming after us and parents dying in this way. And yet just the emotions of this movie, particularly for me, I think when the animals grow up and become like sort of teenagers or young adults and seeing them finding mates and and becoming horny, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but uh, just like the antlers, you mean? (laughs) Yeah. Just seeing that kind of stuff just felt like both really true to animals because that is literally what animals do. And also, so just really true to the human experience and just kind of, you know, reminds us that as different 
different as we are from deer and skunks and rabbits in a lot of ways, like at our core, we're driven by a lot of the same things and experience a lot of the same things. What I thought was really interesting was when there were conflicts in the movie, a lot of it was just taken as fact and they just had to suffer. Like at some point Mm -hmm. it's winter and Bambi is like, I'm hungry, mama. And she's like, I know, me too. (laughs) And then they just deal with it. And what I thought was really interesting was when they're in the meadow and it's like they see the first grass after winter and that's when man comes back and is shooting after them and Bambi's father comes and they're running the three of them together and then you don't see the mother and then when he's running with his mother and then it's just Bambi and then he runs into his father and his father says, your mother can't be with you anymore. Your mother can't be with you anymore. And he has a tear, and then life goes on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the next, and what I thought would happen was that there might be a scene that I don't remember of like Bambi mourning or talking to Thumper about it or, or something, or maybe some scenes with his father talking about it. But there wasn't. It's just now you're grown up, and that's just how life is is that your parents die and you have to grow up. And there's, there's no, like, diddly-daddling. It's like, this is just what nature is. And nature mm-hmm. is brutal. Because at first it really bothered me that that he didn't get a chance to mourn. But then it, it felt more real to me that he didn't. It was just like, well, he just has to go on with life. Like, life isn't stopping for him. Like, this is just how it works. Yeah, you would expect, like, him to be, like, later in the movie, like, looking at his picture of his mom. <laughs> <laughs> like, that would happen in so many movies. This is the exact same movie as The Lion King. <laughs> In every single way. Not in every way, but yeah. I mean, they, the Lion King definitely like paid homage to this movie a lot. But like Simba gets to mourn for his dad. He sees his dad dead and, and cries over him. And he talks to other people. You know what I mean? Like there's mm-hmm. more to it. And, mm-hmm. and that seems more like self-reflective, like learning to get over strife and struggle in your life. And with Bambi, it's just like, nope, nature. Like, get over it. Well, like, yeah, and Mufasa comes back like as a ghost, like later in the yeah. movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he has closure, and there's no closure in nature. Yeah. It's just like you just have to keep going. And constant peril. Yeah. I just really appreciated this movie doing it in that way with like like the mom isn't even really mentioned again. I don't think like no, it's I just, don't think he is. She is. It's just it goes on, and you don't see her dying, and the impact of it is so huge. I mean, everyone kind of knows that that's like the major takeaway from this movie. In fact, I was kind of surprised that it happened as late in the movie as it does. Cause I expected it to be like, that was kind of the inciting incident and yeah, then he grows yeah. up. Yeah. Um, but she's actually in probably half the movie. Yeah. And there's a whole, that whole like setup sequence that is, you know, it's just scaring you, but it's also like preparing you for the fact that that's actually going to happen later, which I didn't remember that being a part of it at all. Yeah, and then the other element that I think is done really elegantly in, in Spare is the hunter, who is never seen. Oh, yeah. And um, in both cases, like, they debated whether or not they should have a scene where, you know, Bambi sees his mom and, like, goes up to her. And also, they had originally, like, the hunter in the movie a little bit more. And in both cases, just decided to kind of cut back and, and let the simplicity speak for it. And I think I think that's a really good kind of way to sum up the movie as a whole, is it just feels so simple and yet so profound. I, again, was just kind of blown away by just how much it said with so little yeah because there's no face to man 
And they don't know the word hunter. It's just man is in the forest. And that's really like man in general encroaching on animals. Oh, yeah. This movie made me hate humans so much more, (laughs) um, even at the time. But also, I thought, especially rewatching it this time, how deliberately it doesn't let you know whether they're hunting these animals for food or for sport. I grew up in the South, in New Orleans, and hunting was such a part of life, both for food and for sport. And really early on, I learned to draw a moral distinction between the two and was always really disgusted by people who just hunt animals for trophies. But to the animals, it doesn't matter. Precisely. To the animals, it doesn't matter at all. And that's why I think, part of why this movie, I think, is so affecting even now is that you are placed in these kinds of social relationships and social bonds that animals like this do actually develop with each other. They do actually develop these family structures with each other. You know, I'm not sure how, like, scientifically rigorous it is in the case of this movie or not. Um, But again, it's I'm struck especially now by how dramatically effective that is and how both how far in it pulls you in this movie, but also how little it resorts to melodrama to making that happen. And Seth, you had mentioned that this movie felt a bit like a distraction from World War II. And to me, it feels a bit like a a commentary on it, just of the kind of violent nature of man. And even though the movie doesn't really deal with that very explicitly, like that threat of violence, you know, encroaching on on this world does to me resonate with that time in a way that unlike the end of Dumbo for example when he is literally like inspiring warplanes like does so in a very very subtle way versus uh overtly um another scene that really struck me was the pheasant that gets shot yeah I wanted to talk about that she, yeah. she panics. Yeah. Don't fly. Don't fly. God, was, I just look at this movie. <laughs> it was a much more like Don Bluthian moment than I was expecting from any of these movies. It's these pheasants. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, that are hiding from hunters and they're crouching in the grasses in this field. And one of them is just totally losing her shit, basically, and being like, well, I've got to fly. I've got to fly. He's coming. He's so close. Yeah, I don't really want to. <laughs> put this into modern context but it feels so like real to like a a shooter situation that obviously way less common and different back then but just that dread of you know having a man with a gun coming after you and not knowing whether to run or to hide like just felt like particularly in these times i think just so devastating yeah i thought this movie was gorgeous i loved the backgrounds Mm -hmm. they at one point i could see the paint like in the background and I loved that about it that I could see that that hand craftsmanship of like art um god I miss I miss hand-drawn animation a lot I miss yeah. it a lot after watching these movies I really miss it yeah and again like especially re-watching it now like I do think there is so much of the simplicity of the storytelling that is dictated by the fact that you're having to hand draw every single bit of this. So everything mm-hmm. you draw needs to have purpose or meaning or value. Yeah, they really pulled out all the stops with this movie versus, I think, especially something like Dumbo. I mean, this was one of the first movies to use. It had like multiple layers so that like there were like the backgrounds were on a different layer than a lot of the front action. I remember in Disney World trips where you would kind of get a moment to see 
at the actual hand-drawn animation cells. And I remember seeing Bambi specifically where it was like, this was like just the cell for the characters. This was just mm-hmm. the cell for the backgrounds. And I do think that is a huge leap forward artistically for this movie. Yeah, I mean, this, if not the very most beautiful Disney movie is definitely up there. Um, There was a Chinese artist named Tyrus Wong who's largely responsible for the kind of look of the forest in a natural setting. And I think once that's kind of pointed out, there is a certain like Asian influence that feels like very distinct here. I especially love the sequences where the the forest, it goes like abstract. So depending on what's happening, like the colors go stark red or like when all of the deer are running away from man's gunshots, like they change. They're almost like, I don't want to say more cartoony. They just like change and it's, it's more impressionistic, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was just really interesting. It felt like they really took risks with the animation with this. And it was really, yeah. really interesting. Also, when watch. Bambi is fighting the other buck, it kind of yeah. changes into like pinks and blues, and it's yeah. really striking. Yeah, yeah, and and it does build on you know not just the kind of stylistic flourishes of Fantasia, not just the kind of diversionary moments of like the pink elephant thing in Dumbo. I I think again, it's like it's incorporating these stylistic changes to advance the storytelling. So I'm around a dog and a baby a lot of the time, (laughs) and I was watching this movie, and I noticed so much of my baby's expressions in Bambi. Like, And I know that they looked at a a baby's face to kind of mesh a baby's face with with a deer's face to create this caricature of a baby in a deer form. Deers are hard to draw and relate to because they have eyes on the side of their head so it took some figuring out what Bambi was going to look like and I just noticed like when he's shy and just like curling towards his mom but I also noticed a lot of just like animals because I stare at my dog a lot (laughs) but like when he notices a squirrel and the way his ears move and just when I just can't get out of my head when when I don't even think you hear anything yet but the Bambi's mom hears something and just the way she's looking out like and she's kind of like almost ready to panic and she's like moving her head back and forth and her ears are twitching like something is wrong and I just recognize that as a real move that animals do and it's so subtle so I just like to commend the animators for just nailing these like emotional expressions for animals and humans in these characters Yeah, we haven't talked a whole lot about Walt Disney himself in this episode, but I mean, I think that's where you really have to applaud his attention to detail and different attention to different details. And I think all of these movies, because they're all very different movies for the most part, a couple of them have some similarities, but I think as much as like Disney movies feel very much the same uh, going forward, like there's not a lot of outliers. Um, They either kind of adhere to one formula or the other. These ones are all pretty different. And the fact that, I mean, he did, you know, like study real animals and that like at this time uh, when cartoons were mostly known for being like silly, like Mickey Mouse, who doesn't look at all like a mouse. He really, I think, I mean, that this is not a <laughs> revelation or anything, but that he just pioneered like what animation could do and should do and how realistic it could look and... For these to be some of the first animated movies ever made, I think is astounding that they are as realistic and that the attention to detail is just so in really all of these movies is is pretty astounding when you think of like what could have been the first animated movie, Mm -hmm. like some really long, like ridiculous sketch with a like cartoon mouse or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty astounding. 
overall, I just found like revisiting these movies really interesting in the context of Disney and what it's become. Um, obviously, it is one of the biggest brands in the world. I think it's officially recognized as number 14, but I would kind of argue that it's number one because uh, like we could live without you know, Apple or Coke or McDonald's, like, you, there's a substitute for all of those things. Like, oh, Coke doesn't exist. Like, I guess we'll drink Pepsi, you know? Yeah. Like, but with Disney, there really isn't anything nearly like it at all. Because it buys everything. <laughs> that is yeah, a competitor. That, that's the predicate of that situation. Yeah. Right. And, but I mean, so it has become a very safe brand. I think it is now, I mean, particularly in these last, like, five or ten years, it is regurgitating movies that it's already made that are already successful to us and also buying other movies that are already successful and making more of those. Like, in a lot of ways, Disney couldn't be taking any fewer risks now. And so I think it's really interesting to look back at this era when they were taking risks. And a little sad that, like, Disney was once very ahead of the curve and inventing things. And it's kind of impossible to state how much of an influence he had on all animation because pretty much all animation looks like Disney, especially, like, Western animation. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, because part of what we should cover when we cover future Disney eras is how their animators and the animation studio later incorporated the influence from anime, incorporated Japanese folktales and Chinese folktales into future Disney projects too. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also just astounding how little this has all changed in 80 years, that it's all princesses, orphans, and cute animals. (laughs) And Bambi set the template for movies like The Lion King and Snow White sent the template for all of the princess movies and some things have changed but very very few things have changed like and and it is kind of a little weird to watch these movies and how much they feel like the movies that were made 70 and 80 years later is i don't know i i I was just it was really interesting to go back to the beginning of something that is just taken as such a given and i think it's interesting that disney has part of every child's life is such a, a staple and it's always there and yet it's only recently that I think Disney has become an omnipresent thing for adults as well. And that, like, we also can't escape Disney now. Like, it's not just for kids. And they're, in a way, I think they're targeting our generation as much as younger kids with, like, a lot of things like the Lion King remake and stuff. And just that, like, it's this thing that we can't escape. <laughs> I just think these movies are wonderful. I mean, I complained about, like, Fantasia or whatever, but in the whole, like, these movies are wonderful. I loved doing this podcast. (laughs) I enjoyed it so much. I want more. I want to watch all of them. And that, like, that alone, like, is just such a compliment, I feel like. I just, like, was so happy to press play on these and, like, watch them. And I feel like, for the most part, they totally hold up. I can't wait for my baby to be old enough so I can watch all of these with her. They're they're still relevant because they're, they're great for kids to or you know anybody to watch today still and in a hundred more years they'll still be you know great to watch because they're just totally entertaining yeah i totally loved it and i i really loved all the songs all the songs came back to me and i just i went to spotify and i was like disney classic disney songs please and i was just like been singing them around my house <laughs> yeah as someone who's not like overly into disney and doesn't have a daughter to share <laughs> disney with at the moment um, you can come over yeah I we can will. get you a daughter <laughs> Yeah, we I can, can get, get you a daughter, daughter tonight. tonight. <laughs> well, uh, follow through on that. Call me later. I I don't know what I was expecting from this. I mean, I was like, that's a great topic. Disney, who doesn't, 
you know, I want to talk about <laughs> Disney. But, like, I was surprised at how excited I was to watch these movies even before we did. And I think I was more excited by these movies than I would be for a lot of other Disney movies. But in general, I was kind of like, I would do five more episodes <laughs> of, dis- of different Disney era- eras for the podcast. Like, I was interested in researching it. And, I, yeah, I was surprised at how, like, just delighted I felt watching most of these movies. Yeah, this episode really was, like, comfort food, rediscovering these things, both because I remembered the feeling of how much I loved them and how surprising and and they were in my life as a kid, but especially rediscovering and rewatching them now because of how, again, kind of timeless and, and outside of time they are. And yes, Disney's remaking all of these franchises and properties now, but I feel like they fall short in so many ways, <laughs> mostly in the moments where they are trying to make them quote-unquote current. Mostly when they insert modern references and and side jokes like with like current events in them. There's a lot to be said for the Disney Renaissance movies, and we will say all of it when we eventually get there. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think part of what's so so special about these golden era Disney movies is not just the animation company taking chances, but taking the right chances, taking really bold stylistic leaps, trying to advance the art and craft of it at every turn, but solely for the purpose of advancing storytelling and making for more compelling characters. These could have been made in ways that were so much more talky and boring and tedious than they did. And they could have been movies that really didn't stand the test of time. But I I think basically almost all of these movies are really worth revisiting or visiting for the first time, because there are plenty of folks who haven't seen all of these early, early Disney movies. What was your favorite out of the five? I knew someone was going to ask that. (laughs) I mean, I still really, really love Pinocchio, but maybe just because it was a surprise factor. Like, I couldn't get over Bambi. I watched it twice. I'm Twitter-pated with Bambi. (laughs) What's the matter with them? Why are they acting that way? (laughs) Why, don't you know? They're Twitter-pated. Twitter-pated? Yes. Nearly everybody gets Twitter-pated in the springtime. Bambi is probably my abiding favorite of all of them, especially now. Bambi... Go Bambi! Just Bambi all the way. Sorry, Dumbo. Unanimous Bambi. Unanimous Bambi is the new name of this podcast. <laughs> and that's all the unanimous Bambi we have time for in this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode... It is spring and the flowers are in bloom. We will take a look at some very unconventional April showers in Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, starring Tom Cruise, Julianne Moore, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and many others. <laughs> many, many others. Everyone else. <laughs> I'm in it. You're in it. We're in it. And Fox. <laughs> and that's all the momentum we have time for in this episode of When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and all the social media. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review of five stars or more so more people can listen to the podcast. I have been Seth Pearson. And you can call me Flower if you want to. I don't mind. And you can call me Flower if you want to. <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, like second or third.
same time. Both of us want to see the same Becky thing. Becky is spraying me with a stench right now. <laughs> uh, away from the couch, please. <laughs> Thank you.